I believe we are live for the first episode of The Debrief. I'm extremely excited to be in a podcast space where I can be wearing my sweatpants, not under lights, and on a futon. <laughs> so thank you all for joining. I see some people are already in here. I see some familiar faces. Um, and I'm also, I think, most excited about this platform because it enables us to be a two-way conversation, which is typically not the case in the podcast space. Sometimes we get to do live streams and I can take questions, but I think it will be really nice to hear some of your voices. So to that end, I wanted to do this first episode on a recent episode of Bad Faith because we got so much interesting, dynamic, positive feedback about my recent interview with Thomas Chatterson Williams about his most recent book and this concept of how we should potentially think of race differently if we want to have and aspire to have a certain kind of, um, not post-racism, I won't say post-racial, but post-racism world. Are we performing a kind of race craft that the Field Sisters wrote about when we speak in ways that ultimately end up shoring up and concretizing the ideas of racial division? Is it possible to have, or desirable even, to have cultural pride separate and apart from a kind of racial pride? Are we inconsistent in how we understand race when we scoff at someone like Rachel Dolezal, but have much more open, fluid conceptions of what it means to be gendered? These are some of the things I hope that we can get into today. Ooh, lots of people in here now. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome. Um, and I'm looking now for our guest, Bertrand Cooper. Let's just scroll in through here. Uh, looks like he's not in here yet. So I thought that what I might do is start by just rehashing a little bit of what the arguments were in the episode for those who haven't seen it. Uh, uh, so basically, Thomas and I, uh, we talked about a number of subjects, but the basic premise was he's talking about what it means to be an ex-Black man. And what it means to be an ex-Black man doesn't necessarily mean wanting to distance yourself in his argument from one's culture per se. It's more about saying that by kind of subscribing to some stereotypical notion of what it means to be Black, racially, you're ultimately concretizing this idea that there is something that is authentically truly black that can dip into the realm of stereotypes many of which are not necessarily positive and you are doing the thing that white supremacists ultimately want which is for everybody to think of themselves as racial terms and to want to preserve that kind of racial identity in a way that you know some tiki torch bearing folks would advocate for and we went back and forth in the conversation also dipped into this question of racial authenticity he is someone who was himself biracial and who married and had children with a white woman and the children ended up coming out looking extremely white, you know, and that made him question the extent to which he had always identified as singularly black. You know, if I can have a child that doesn't look physiognomically black, whatever that means, you know, is it, does it make sense for me to have identified so strongly as black when obviously so much of what I am is also white? So this stirred up a lot of thoughts feelings and questions from people on the internet, which I hope to unpack. I'm getting a message from 
Bertrand that he's just a little bit behind. So maybe I should go ahead. I'm a little nervous to do this because I know how it can be on the internet. But does anyone want to weigh in with a first kind of question or comment who perhaps listened to the interview and had a response? Let's see. Am I able to see how hand raising works? Oh, hey, Brian. <laughs> am I am I doing this right? I'm sorry, guys. I really appreciate you. Oh. Hey, I really appreciate you guys um, experimenting with me with this first with this first effort here on this platform. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate your little hearts and fires of support. Oh, okay. I'm going to take the next caller. Um, hello, Olivia. Hello, hi, Brianna. <laughs> How are you doing, Olivia? I'm doing well. You're killing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, did you have a question or comment? Yeah, well, I actually I'm, I'm felt compelled to say something because I sort of as you were saying that little bit of background about me. I'm actually I'm biracial. Um, my dad's black and my mm. mom's white. Um, and, you know, talking sort of about my identity and and really coming to terms with it is something that sort of happens for me later in life. Um, so I'm really, and it's mm. something that I'm still grappling with and still like trying to understand really. And I, I don't know if I'll ever get to a spot where I can like completely define how I feel about it, but you know, that's that's sort of how it goes. So I just wanted to say, I'm super excited to tune in and, and hear what you have to say. And I'm just looking forward. Well, I'm curious. Oh, okay. I, I'm curious. I don't want to put you on the spot, but mm -hmm. when you say you, you know, are still trying to come to terms with it, do you feel social pressure to identify one way or the other? Definitely. Um, I think a lot of it, and I think I think the thing that's what I feel to be very true is that it's it's external social pressure. You know, like if it's just me being me, um, you know, then I'm not sort of thinking about what being biracial like means it's only when I start to think about you know how does it impact how other people see me and you know how do I meet expectations and defy expectations and you know what do people think about me when that you know it, it, it's it's only when I start to think about and like get down the rabbit hole of different assumptions that people might make when they look at me that it really starts to mess with my head a little bit but when it's just me being me in my head it doesn't um, it doesn't have that same sort of complexity, if that makes sense. Has the, have the pressures differed in terms of the context or environments you're in? Like, so for example, um, did you go to college and feel a different kind of pressure than you might've felt when you were in elementary or middle or, or high school? Yeah. Um, I, I went to a very, I went to a predominantly white middle and high school. Um, it was a private school in Connecticut. It was pretty wealthy on the on overall. Um, and that was not the background that I came from. And I was definitely like one of few um, students of color in my grade and in the school as a whole. And that continued when I went to, when I went to college as well. Like I went to a predominantly white institution and it, but I think what, what what it was is that it wasn't 
almost because I started at that school at my private middle school in fifth grade when I was so young, I didn't really think critically about it or feel some type of way until I got to college and started taking more classes, like deconstructing the idea of race and, and what it means to be black and what, you know, where, where sort of like the history of these ideas come from that it really made me start to, to think more critically about it myself. Yeah, one of the things that came up in the conversation with um, Thomas was that I identified on some level with the kind of insider outsider perspective, even though both of my parents are black, Mm -hmm. because I did grow up overseas. And although my schools weren't predominantly white, they were, you know, mixed as the world. Uh, And I was one of, you know, a subset of people who were American Mm -hmm. to begin with, and a very, very small subset of people who were Black American, there was maybe one or two other Black American families at the school at the time. So even though there were lots of other Black kids, it was a different kind of environment. And it wasn't until I came back to the States and went to college that I felt some pressures to, you know, define my Blackness in kind of a narrower terms. But I never internalized the idea that I didn't possess Mm -hmm. a kind of racial authenticity, regardless of whether or not I may or may not have been made fun of a little bit for having missed the 90s and not being able to, you know, name a Tupac song. Don't come for me. Don't come for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would I would never. I I think I the way that sort of I, I think about it too and I I so my my mother is white and I am in so many ways like an exact replica of my mom. Like I I'm, mm-hmm. I'm one of those people where now like anything that comes out of my mouth, I say, oh my God, I'm turning into my mother. And so I've always like really strongly identified with her. Um, Mm. But as I've gotten older, there is a difference in my mother being a white woman and me being a biracial woman. And I think for a while I didn't really see that difference just because I was always so close with my mom growing up that it didn't it didn't feel any separate but then you know like there would be instances of people being like oh well she acts too white and then like people are like oh but she's not black enough and that was just like a very classic theme that was sort of talked about in the background but I never internalized because I was like it's like this is just my family I'm both like what 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 does that mean um but I I do think it's interesting the the idea of feeling like you don't quite fit in either world is something that I think has been present subconsciously and only like recently have I started thinking about it more actively. Hmm. Well, I want to, I want to bring Brian in as well. Thank you, Olivia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And I can totally do this. I'm totally equipped to do this. Hey, Brian. I think you have to unmute yourself or do I have to unmute you? Brian? Brian, I think you have to press unmute. Okay. I found, I figured it out. Thank you so much. We're both, (laughs) we're both using Colin for the first time. So I appreciate it. (laughs) So learning. Yeah. How are you? I know that I, you know, you are a long time bad faith listener. Swody listener. I'm a Swody stan. Yeah, I'm also Team Joe <laughs> Lee. I love Joe. <laughs> um, Maybe he'll pop in tonight. I told him he should. That would be awesome. So um, it's funny that you brought this topic up because there are things about the left that I don't have much to say about. But when it comes to this, um, I'm an Asian adoptee. And I think that transracial adoptees mm. can really bring um, an interesting lens to this conversation because mm. 
like when it comes to culture and stuff, um, I am not very like, quote unquote, an Asian expert. I don't speak um, Korean or Japanese, which is my ethnicity. Shout out to Ancestry DNA for letting me know that. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't really use chopsticks. So I went to college, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But what I think the missing piece that Thomas, well, my question for Thomas would be more about like the implementation on how to do this, because as much as mm. I absolutely am not a quote unquote stereotypical Asian person, nor am I ashamed that I am outside of the box, the outside world, especially when it comes to dating um, as a gay Asian person, it, they thrust expectations and stereotypes mm. upon me. Like I always get asked, like, what's your favorite anime? Are you going to Comic-Con? And I'm like, mm. I stand Mariah Carey and Beyonce. Like I cannot help you <laughs> <laughs> with that kind of stuff. So that would be my question and my challenge to Thomas. But what I do think that he's getting at that I do agree with is, especially in the political mm. sphere, there is a lot of racial essentialism going on. Even saying stuff like, quote unquote, the black mm. vote, I try not to do. And I understand mm-hmm. that like, there's only but so much time in the day and like we got to get our point across. But like, mm-hmm. even black Americans are very diverse. Like my New York black friends are mostly gay. Some of them are born and raised in the, in the city. So this idea that like the the black church like affects every single black person like on the daily. I don't think that that really pans out when you think about like the diversity, especially in the queer community. Um, I definitely, yeah. like, there are so many like different Asian Americans from different countries in the country. And I just think that uh, there's a lot of like nuance to this discussion because you're kind of doing this balancing act where you're trying to like accept people's mm-hmm. unique experience while also um, not trying to put people in a box. Yeah, I mean, this is this is in some ways an argument in favor of what Thomas is saying, right? That if we shift the emphasis from race to culture, that is already forcing you to speak with a level of specificity in, in, a, in a narrower kind of descriptive realm that is less likely to overgeneralize in speaking in racial terms, given how poorly defined race is and how bad we are at you know, looking at someone and telling what they actually are, where they are, where they're actually from. Right. But even that is difficult to your initial point about being a transracial adoptee. I mean, what does it mean to be, you know, quote unquote, racially Asian, but ethnically something else? Do you feel like there's an aspect of you that stays quote unquote, ethnically or culturally Asian, whatever that means, despite having not been raised by parents of Asian descent. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, it's interesting because when I was 14, I actually got um, harassed by the police because Mm -hmm. um, they thought that I was another Asian in in another town that stole vitamins. And I'm from a, a area in Connecticut where there's not a lot of Asians. So they they thrust like I said, the dominant society thrusts that on you, whether like you want to do it or not. So I guess um, I agree that we should be more nuanced and talk about culture, but who, who's going to do that? Like, I just don't, I just don't see it happening anytime soon, you know? Right. I think that's, I think that's a good point. I'm looking at a comment from the video and, and someone named Michael Jacobs said, it would be great if we first saw a person as a human being and noticed their outward physical condition to see if their basic human needs are being met. Are they clothed in clean clothes? Do they appear to be in physical, emotional pain? Do they appear underfed, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, I read that. And I said, yes. That would be great. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) However, to your point, Brian, you're being treated a certain kind of way based on how you look. And ultimately, I was talking to my mom about this a little bit after the episode. 
some of as a black a black person the kind of cultural identity is rooted in a kind of struggle so there is a certain degree of solidarity and i don't want to say maybe it's too going too far to say it's culture but there's a certain degree of solidarity and tetheredness that comes from the experience of all being seen the same being seen as the same regardless of whether or not we are and having experienced a similar struggle as a result so there is like this weird slipperiness between being say i'm culturally black american and someone else is maybe culturally jamaican or culturally nigerian but at the end of the day there is a shared culture that is based on what we look like which is this ephemeral thing called race that i struggle to say we can just determine doesn't matter anymore because it the the it's still there people you know the cultural effects of it are still there um let's take uh titus uh you're up titus i think you have to unmute yourself also brian i'm gonna okay i was gonna say you can hang out here with me until i can get until our guest comes uh if you want but let me okay let, let me try zach you're up zach hey brianna how you doing Thank I'm doing well. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for uh, for doing this. I'm I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, I kind of wanted to more follow up with the conversation you were having with Olivia, but it kind of overlaps with what Brian was saying from a different lens. So background about myself: my name's Zach. If you look at my profile, you know my my photo. I look very white. I'm actually half Indian. My last name is Naidu, and mm. Um, mm. my mom is white. My dad is Indian. I grew up with three sisters. We all look like pretty super white because my dad is like on the fair side, but he's 100% Indian. And I just wanted to say I completely agree mm -hmm. with the conversations about culture versus race because culturally, I feel I was raised like a very specific way, you know, raised, you know, very much as, as an Indian person. But, you know, you're not mm -hmm. necessarily treated like at least when I would encounter other Indian people, you're not initially treated that way because of your outward appearance and i just you know not not a specific mm -hmm. comment i just wanted to chime in and say i think this exists like throughout the, the different uh you know racial experiences people have ethnic uh, experiences and i was just yeah i know i just wanted to add that well i'm curious like, i appreciate your comment i'm curious and let me know if i'm overstepping and you don't want to talk about your personal life but you know, has I, has has presenting a certain way affected your kind of dating patterns? Because I know people who, like, for example, I have two. I know this ha happened twice. One of my friends is uh, Egyptian, and she went on a date. She was like swiping, swiping, and matched with a man who was Latino. She thought he was Egyptian or at least Middle Eastern, and he thought she was Latina. <laughs> and they were like on three dates before they realized they weren't the same thing. And they ended up getting married and happily ever after. But it was funny because they were trying to choose themselves based on physiognomy, <laughs> for lack of a better word, and ended up choosing something else. And I wonder yeah. if you have had any interesting dynamics play out as you pursued or not pursued South Asian women and how you've been perceived or men and how you've been perceived in that context. Yeah. Um, and, and just to clarify, I'm an open book. You can ask me anything. I, 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 I appreciate the question. Um, yeah. So, so one, so I'm from Texas. I grew mm -hmm. up in Dallas, um, you know, a traditionally very, you know, conservative white state that obviously with most, most metropolitan areas changing, uh, you know, politically, uh, 
and diversity perspective. So um, I mainly encountered, you know, white people. Um, and so from that perspective, mm-hmm. that was a lot of my dating experience. Um, I think it's more when I came to California and, you know, went to school out here. Um, it, I wouldn't say pursued one more than the other. What I will say, though, is the definite change in tone and interactions when I would tell somebody, you know, I'm Zach, I look very white, but I'm, I'm actually half Indian. And they would ask for family photos and I show a family photo. So I don't think I'll have a set answer maybe for, for what you're asking, but I, I, I will say there's just a palpable difference in maybe comfort level people have if, you know, traditionally they only interact or date a certain type of race, um, ethnicity. And so that is mm-hmm. something I've, I've definitely uh, noticed that, you know, when I'm with a going out with a Caucasian person on a date there, it's more like, you know, they find out I'm, I'm half, it doesn't really change the tone of the conversation, uh, as it does when I am going out with a South Asian person. Um, I, I hope that kind of address. Well, so how does, so you, you go out with a South Asian person, they presume you're white and then you tell them that you're half South Asian. How does the tone shift? Well, I, th- it becomes, um, uh, bec- I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just trying to, I, I, I want to, you know, th- this is the thing about calling it, it's, it's recorded. Everything's live. I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm articulating this. Um, it, it honestly, they become more comfortable you know, I think because mm-hmm. there's more things that you can relate to where they can, you know, you know, the stereotypical, like, super, like, intense, academically inclined parents that, you know, I did grow up with that you maybe don't feel as comfortable talking to a white person about as you do someone that, you know, has experienced mm-hmm. that. Um, and so that's mm-hmm. where the conversation about culture that you were having with Brian, I think, plays a large role that, you know, I was culturally raised that way with very similar values that a lot of other people who look fully you know brown uh, are raised and so there's and so there's more maybe an opening or a level of familiarity that they can hone in mm-hmm. on that they otherwise wouldn't be sure you know like from a from a first date or even a second date perspective you know you're kind of fishing sometimes for stuff to talk about it it makes that mm-hmm. uh, a lot maybe a little bit more of a comfortable or engaging conversation so the reason I asked, I don't know if you guys saw this today, um, there was a New York Times style article that people were dragging for filth on Twitter called, uh, do you hide your true self while, da- while dating? And the Twitter uh, message was, when dating interracially, some black people say that code switching comes a second nature. And the article has quotes from all these people who talk about how they behave differently. I think most of the people in the article are black how they behave differently when dating white people. One woman says, oh, I wore Birkenstocks to my first date with this white dude, and I would never do that with a black dude. Um, one woman says that she, you know, was driving with her white partner and asked a black guy outside for directions, and, and her white partner afterwards said, well, why did your voice change when you talked to him? And she didn't realize that she'd been speaking differently until that moment to her partner as she does to other black people. One woman was concerned about taking her braids out and her partner seeing her natural hair. And, there's like, and so people were like very much not pleased with this article because it felt like it was people that it was almost it was sad. It was sad, really, that all these people in these interracial relationships weren't bringing their true selves to the table. But what I'm hearing on some level, I think, from you, Zach, is I think a certain degree of honesty about the fact that for various reasons, 
we do behave differently in different contexts. And there is at least a comfort or familiarity sometimes with people who are from our own communities. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and just to follow up with that, I don't think I'm dishonest or, you know, lying when I'm with other people, you know, not talking about, you know, the, uh, just, just other things that are, are more culturally related to the South Asian community. I think, I mm-hmm. think it's just, you know, I'm a multi-dimensional, I'm not trying to promote myself here, but I just mean like, like there's, <laughs> there's multiple like different angles. I think you can present yourself or, um, mm-hmm. you know, engage with someone. And I also think it's very different, you know, very early on in dating. And, and, I, and I've addressed mm-hmm. all of this mm-hmm. from the context of, you know, like you match with someone on a dating app or you just met somebody at a party and it's, you know, those initial stages. Mm-hmm. I think this actually becomes less of a big deal really, or not, not less of a big deal, but you pay less of a mind to it when you, you know, are in a committed relationship with someone and you've been going out with them for a while and they know you. And, and so that's where I was more speaking mm-hmm. from that context, but I, I will say, yeah, you know, the conversation points are maybe a little different with a South Asian person than it would be, you know, with a white person or, or anybody else. Yeah, I think that's right. There's there's like a shorthand, like the same way if I met someone from New York, I might speak more casually or, or more specifically about where I lived or where I like to eat than someone who wasn't as familiar with the city, right? Um, and I don't, I, ha- I don't have a ton of experience with interracial dating. I had one boyfriend who was Chinese American, but there was like this, you know, there wasn't a, a beginning moment where it's like, uh, how woke is he? How down is he going to be? What can I say? Like, what is what is the dynamic here going to be? But it very quickly turned out that, you know, he was from the Bronx and a public defender and everything was fine. Um, but thank you, Zach. I'm going to take this next question from Chris. Hey, Chris, you're up. You're all going to have to unmute yourselves, I think, uh, when oh, you're in the queue. Yeah, I can hear you now, Chris. How are oh, you? Hey, how are you doing, Brianna? I'm a very I'm doing fan. well, thanks. Thank fan. you. Thanks for calling in for this inaugural episode. Oh, I saw this and I was like, oh my God, I got to get in because I was, I, when I saw <laughs> that episode, I was like, oh, I need to say so much. <laughs> Tell me, what do, you, what do you got to say, Chris? Well, well quickly, I wanted to respond um, just kind of off of my question. Um, the first caller who came in, um, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. from Seattle, you know, I'm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm black, <laughs> you know, dark skinned <laughs> black man. You know, I was raised, um, you know, very um, pro black household, you know, educated, you know, kind of type household that had me, you know, writing papers outside of school about, you know, shooting between black students and, you know, apartments, you know, things, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but um, mm-hmm. I respond to him because I, you know, I'm from Seattle and there's a really high Asian population here. And um, just to touch on the difference mm-hmm. between culture and race, I mm-hmm. um, personally, <laughs> just in my encounters, I've always seen Asians as a very different group, you know, in terms of themselves culturally. So um, you're going to encounter very different, you know, Asians who act very differently. There's plenty of Asians out here who, you know, act and look like me. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they're, you know, there are also Asians, like, you know, at my school, who really only move amongst Asians. But I've never looked at it as a racial thing, as more as a cultural thing. Um, mm. so, um, so I just want to touch on that, not to negate anything he was saying. Sorry, I'm kind of nervous. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I didn't want to No worries, you're, do- you're doing great. Okay, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think that 
I guess my point is, is that I think race and culture can exist at the same time. Um, so let me ask you this, Chris, because here, here's the here's the dynamic, and maybe this is just a descriptive issue. I think that we've all encountered people who, then this is going to sound reductive. I don't know how, how to talk about this without sounding reductive, so just apologies in advance. But who, let's say, are racially, we would say in one category, but culturally move in different kinds of spaces. So not like full on Dolezal, but, you know, I would say absolutely. that, let's say, my former partner who was from the Bronx, grew up in a predominantly black and Latino environment. He was, you know, still culturally Chinese. He had Chinese parents and, you know, you know, had to take like Chinese classes and, you know, at the end of the day was a part of a Chinese family, but also had a certain cultural fluency with blacks and Latinos because of the way he brought, you know, the people he went to school with and liaised with in his kind of independent life away from his family. And so, but I still wouldn't say that those other aspects of his personality, right, the parts that weren't Chinese, were Chinese culture just because he was Chinese American. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, you know, I, I was vice president of um, the BSU at my college. And just to touch on what you were saying, my um, best friend at the time and um, the next person who was under me was Asian and Pacific Islander. She had to so, you know, that that would just, you know, just kind of prove my point. But she identified with all black people, I think, culturally. I don't think it made her any less mm. um, Filipino or any less um, Pacific Islander, you know, but I just, uh, I've never viewed mm-hmm. it as a monolithic group, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. So this is what's so fun. This is what's so interesting is that we would say then, OK, so and so is behaving in a way that's culturally other, culturally black, culturally Latino, whatever that means, we all kind of speak in those terms, but oftentimes when it comes to at least, especially I think culturally black, it it tends to be a kind of a narrow band of what that means. So for example, if I, if you say your, your uh, Filipino friend, for example, is behaving, you know, is culturally black, I don't think that they're going to be listening to Luther, you're not talking about the fact that they love Luther Vandross. Right. And like playing dominoes, like we're talking about like more recent hip hop culture, which I think is part of what uh, Thomas was interrogating in in his book and and in his memoir, actually, the extent to which he felt very black, but that he needed to conform to a narrow band of what it meant to be culturally black that he didn't fully want to subscribe to or he didn't even that time spiel was. Especially you know, good, good for him. And like, there were some negative aspects of that that he found to be corrosive. Oh, absolutely. I can see that. I could definitely see that, you know, and, and at the same time, I have cousins who are half black who look way wider than mm-hmm. and do not behave in a way that I would say is culturally in terms of the ways that you, what you just described. Mm-hmm. So, like, to me, I guess that leads to the first thing that I actually wrote down when I came. Mm-hmm. The first black guy out here, I got to come out. Um, but um, I, I guess my biggest question when I watched that interview was when it comes, because I guess I view race in a different way, just kind of how you tapped on is that when you talk about race with black people, it kind of originates in a struggle. Um, and I think that's the case every mm. time you kind of touch on race. Um, so mm. is that really Thomas's choice? Because if one mm. white person chooses to treat him differently 
because they view him as being black. Can is his personal viewpoint on race more powerful than what is happening to him? I think mm. that's my question. Yeah, and I think we got at this a little bit when I was I was saying to him, you know, you might when you cut your hair down be perceived as an Arab man in in Europe or whatever. You might be able to pass as other things and people might perceive you differently. My experience is going to be different just because I look not ambiguous. And while I understand that there are parts of the world in Brazil, et cetera, where there are different racial categories on like a spectrum of blackness, you know, there's no doubt about my ancestry being overwhelmingly African in origin, right? So ultimately what it felt like, what came out in our conversation was his daughters, because they came out looking unambiguously white, the, the the unspoken thing seemed to be that they almost, because of the way they looked, weren't going to experience that struggle. And that he had some mixed feelings about that because there's some sense of solidarity and identity in that struggle. At the same time, it seems obviously true that you don't want your children to struggle. And so what do you do with that? Like if some, if, if some aspect of your cultural slash racial identity is rooted in being persecuted and feeling um, bonds that are forged in struggle, then that puts you in a really interesting kind of psychological space as you're looking at your child for whom you want everything to be wonderful, obviously. And I think that that was a really interesting tension that we kind of excavated, but I'm not really sure where to go from there, what to do with that. Um, thank you, Chris. Was there any other question you wanted to ask before I move on to the next caller? I, I did have one more that I felt like sure. was very important um, because I, I couldn't help Notice, but notice that this interview came right after your debate with Andy Sullivan. Mm -hmm. and I actually I, recorded it first I, that morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Well, then, then that makes it even more, you know, great. Because in that interview, what I noticed, I thought it was great. I thought you performed it very well. But what I couldn't help but notice from his argument is that it felt like all of his answers, even when you try to remain in the world of white men. All of his answers, I felt like, were anticipation of you bringing up the race issue. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure, you you know, you might have a different opinion on that. But, it, you know, it got almost to the point, you know, when, when we're talking about children starving, it, it just seemed like he was going out of his way to defend things, even when you were not mm. trying to, because I, it felt like he was just waiting for that to come up. Oh, yes. And I was aggressively, assiduously avoiding race because I knew oh, no. as a strategic no, matter. Yeah, yeah I, I, I thought we could get farther if we didn't get bogged down into some, you know, thoughts and feelings I know he already has in that area. Yeah, absolutely. I, I noticed that. And that's why I thought this was so important because of what you look like to me. How and that is going to cause a specific type of response no matter what you're talking about, I believe, can we, is it even smart for us to want a post-racial society when you have those like Andrew Sullivan who will defend things that I don't particularly believe he supports, but to protect this kind of like preemptively strike any critique that may come associated with race? even if it's economic, even if, you know, healthcare, no matter what it is, you know, I feel even police brutality, because it's not like police don't beat up white people. I, I feel like it's yeah. 
that's what I've my experiences have kind of been and what I saw in that interview. So I was just curious about what your take on that and how it kind of connects with this conversation. Yeah, thank you for that, Chris. Um, so I look, I feel a little weird saying this, but like I said, I, I knew I wanted to avoid race with Andrew Sullivan because I knew that that was a bigger conversation than we necessarily had time for. And I, I appreciate Thomas's point about how people who are, you know, actual white nationalists and white supremacists have a certain interest in creating and keeping racial boundaries. Now, someone with someone like Andrew Sullivan, who ostensibly is arguing for a race blind world, you know, it's interesting that despite that, there was this interest that he seemed to have to turning the conversation back toward race, right? Because um, I think he was anticipating me having certain arguments, arguments for equality, arguments for change in the world that are often made in the context of trying to get racial equality. I have often found, however, and I get in trouble for saying this sometimes, and I'd like to know what you guys think. But if we live in a world that is racist and people are not always friendly to the idea of racial equality and are hostile to the idea that inequality and disparities are caused by something other than personal failures or cultural failures, then it seems obvious to me that if I'm trying to make an argument, if I'm trying to advance a cause in certain spaces, that simply avoiding the topic of race might get me farther in the quest for racial equality. Now, some people will say, oh, you shouldn't hide the ball. It somehow, um, you know, it undermines your own integrity. It's dishonest. It is throwing race under the bus. I don't know that I see it that way because there are other contexts where obviously it's important to talk about race. But I've sometimes gone over this in my mind. If we're talking about, you know, police brutality, and we know that police brutality, some of it also affects, you know, white people. White people are getting cut, shot by the cops. There was that awful scene of the that white guy in the hotel room on his knees um, with his hands behind his head who got gunned down like a dog. I mean, these things happen. Um, and sometimes I'm thinking to myself, well, if the world, if you're telling me the world is racist and racists don't care about black lives, then would it behoove us to highlight some of these instances of depravity against white people, highlight white poverty, highlight, you know, that uh, uh, what's his face uh, on trial right now, his, you know, his victims were white to the extent that that may or may not play on sympathy for white lives. And it's something that I struggle with but in the context of that conversation, at least I felt like was really productive because we had to get straight to his ideology and sidestep whether or not he had any bias against, not bias against black people per se, but bias against the idea that we should be aiming for racial equality because his view is that the disparities are the result of cultural deficits as opposed to structural issues. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and take um, Omar. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Chris. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I appreciate your your questions, Chris. They're very thoughtful. Omar, you're up at bat. You're going to have to unmute yourself. Okay. I just figured it out. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, I'm, I'm Mexican, um, not white passing. I'm kind of like the archetypal... Uh, Mexican, it's like uh, Spanish and indigenous. And I kind of grew up um, mm -hmm. going back and forth between the US and, and Mexico. Um, and um, I kind of realized like very viscerally, like the, the difference between collectivist and individualist cultures. Um, mm. And I think that like 
individualist cultures, um, I think, have uh, more freedom uh, for the individual to reinvent themselves. And that was really um, in contrast in Mexico versus the US. Um, like people try to uh, distance themselves from being Mexican where, where I grew up. And it was just to, to Mexicans back in Mexico, mm. that seemed uh, really ridiculous. And there's, I mean, it, it you don't have as much freedom, um, which is good and bad in, in some ways. And so it- Can you say more about that? About what it, you know, when you say reinvent yourself, can, yeah. yeah. So, what does that mean? Yeah. So, like for example, um, like people uh, here, like are more likely to um, take on like certain like uh, they can rename themselves. And yeah, some people might like you know kind of giggle at that, um, but it's not as um, it's not as it doesn't cause as a strong reaction as it would in Mexico. Like people like would say like I I like. It's just a way to kind of, uh, you know, make fun of those those kinds of um, reinventions, um, where you're like trying to mm. break away from like who who you were born, what your cultural identity is, like your name. Um, and yeah, I, I went to Hawaii, and there's like this small community there of um, people, uh, like Bohemians, that. Um, just rename themselves and take on these very like spiritual uh, sounding new names. And that in Mexico just wouldn't um, fly. Um, do you think that, do you think that, that the um, kind of uh, community you're in in Hawaii is typical of, of what, what, hap- what happens to people in America when they try to change their names more broadly though? Or was that just kind of uniquely... No, I mean, yeah, I think that because it's on an island, because it's isolated, I think like, you know, uh, things can be shielded. But I think that like it just it just shows kind of like a, a pattern that maybe goes to more an, an, an extreme on an island where it's isolated. But it's just to kind of. And also just in a liberal, a more kind of progressive environment. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Because this is yeah. the, only reason, the only reason I'm pushing back, back is because, you know, sometimes make, people make these arguments like, um, you know, it's uh, this community or that community is more conservative. The black community is more conservative. The black community is homophobic. But I'm like, OK, most of America is homophobic. <laughs> I mean, it's not like to downplay or anything. It's like <laughs> yeah. pick, a, pick a state, a, a conservative state. And there's more white people in that state that are conservative than live in the entire than black people live in the entire country. So it's so often sometimes I think we're using kind of racial categories or cultural categories to describe, you know, what is all, frankly a lot of diversity within communities. And I wonder if there might be I would you know there might be like more progressive communities in the United States than Mexico. I don't know. I'm not that familiar with Mexico, but you know I would imagine that there are spaces in Mexico where it's like totally copacetic to change your name just like there's places in america where you could get away with it and then other places in america would mock you up down left right and center people like malcolm x and you know uh, muhammad ali got a lot of blowback for trying to change their names right i mean it's you know 50 years ago but still yeah 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 i mean you you i you like inevitably have to when you're talking about groups like i mean i i have a background in social science 
And inevitably, mm. you kind of just talk about trends. Like you look at, you think about things in terms of data points and like how much each of those individual data points like deviates from, from the mean. Um, and so like, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. there's some use to, to making generalizations, but then you also lose mm-hmm. a lot of the richness in, in the data as well. Um, and so like, it's, it's like a balancing act between those, like, yeah, it, it's problematic, but then it's also like, you couldn't talk about anybody or any group um, if you know, like what kinds of patterns there are in, in the data uh, and you, you wouldn't be able to say much uh, without like, you know, offending somebody, uh, like it, it, offending their sense of individualism. Uh, so you were you brought this up to say that you think that that Mexico is a more collectivist. Is that the word you used? Yeah. Um, environment yeah. in America yeah. is a more individualist environment. Yeah. And you had a preference for the individualism. Is that is that accurate or no? Okay, you're just no. it's just a scripted. No. Okay, no. so tell me tell me how you feel about yeah, them no, no. respectively. Uh, I just felt. I mean, I I grew up undocumented, and I grew up in a community in the states that was uh, mostly Mexican-American. And there was a lot of internalized mm-hmm. racism there. Um, and so mm-hmm. like for me, it felt a very hostile environment. So every time I would go back to Mexico, it felt like I was going back to safety, like where I was accepted. Um, so like it really magnified my, my sense of uh, Mexicanness as well, um, because I, I gravitated towards, towards that safety. Um, Mm. and, um, but I also appreciated kind of the, the collective, um, nature of the culture, which I saw like very like concretely in the way that people related to strangers, the people there were a lot more uh, willing to just randomly talk to people. Whereas when I would come back to the States, um, generalizing, um, talking to a random person, like there was a higher chance of people looking at you weird and saying, oh, like, what, what do you want from me? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank, thank you for that. I, I'm glad you brought that up because um, there was a thread going through the Andrew Sullivan conversation where he kept wanting to debate individualism versus collectivism. He obviously is a big fan of individualism, um, sees that as, you know, part of the, you know, enlightenment tradition, something that makes America great is the individual's ability and his imagining to make their own self and their own lives. The fact of enormous swaths of the population not having that right legally or socially for most of American history, he sees us more as uh, an aberration that got cured. And the fact that we got past that ostensibly uh, is evidence of America's greatness. I see it as evidence that the ideal of of individuality doesn't really get you that far, um, as much as in the abstract, it has nice aspects of it. And I think yeah. I didn't really want to engage on that point too much or have to defend collectivism, which is also code for Marxism um, for him. But I, I did want to, I mean, I, I would defend it, right? Like, I do think that there is a, failure to grapple with what is lost when we emphasize individualism the way we do in this country that I think the left and people who are more progressive are very familiar with and open to. But 
it, it was just like a whole other bag of worms that I didn't want to get into in the course of that conversation. But there could be a whole debate about like, you can, you can argue pros and cons to any of these yeah. things, right? Like, obviously it's great to be able to manifest whoever you want to be. Obviously it's great to be able to change your name or identify as a different gender or move to a different part of the world or be whoever you want to be. At the same time, the individual right to do that doesn't mean that you can't value the relationships that you have in a kind of collectivism, whatever you want to call it, and have a community that feels some responsibility to each other, regardless of what individual choices you're making in your life, right? And maybe that's something that we can have Andrew back to discuss in a different context with some other people, perhaps some social anthropologists who can talk to and speak to the different ways society has been structured and how arguably the fact that America doesn't have some of the social programs that every other similarly situated affluent nation does is because we've been stressing individualism and quote unquote personal responsibility over our obligations to each other as human beings. So thank you for that, Omar. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to make a, another quick point is that people who are ethnically ambiguous also, I think, have uh, more of an opportunity or the privilege to kind of play with going back and forth outside of, of like different um, different races, different ethnicities. And um, some people who aren't super ambiguous, like they don't have that luxury. Um, like if you are like obviously like indigenous, very indigenous looking, like you can't really escape that. Like it's always a negotiation between the individual and the group, that, that identity. And, and and if you are just obviously like yeah. of a certain ethnicity race, um, you can't really escape that as, as easily as somebody who is a little more ambiguous like um, like Thomas. Um, so, yeah. anyway. Yeah, I appreciate that, Omar. Thank you. I'm going to start you. moving through these in a bit more of a clip because a queue has actually formed, which is exciting and cool. Um, but I want to give as many people to speak as pos- a chance to speak as possible. Um, Titus, you're up at bat. If you just unmute yourself, it'll be good to go. Okay, am I here? You're here. Oh, man, that was so difficult. <laughs> the you first one. Oh, um, <laughs> thank you for doing this. I love all of your work. It's incredible to hear oh, you, you pontificate over various subjects. This one in particular, I love, and I loved your talk with Thomas. And uh, I, think it's, I think it's a paradox, really, um, because it's nice to be past it, but... Um, you know, the the societal inequities that exist structurally are just impossible to ignore and must change through mass awareness. I mean, it's funny, just to give you some background, I, um, I grew up in San Jose, California, and um, I mm-hmm. went to school. I it was a huge identity crisis in retrospect because my mother was Spanish and I was born in Madrid, Spain. And my father was, you know, in the mm-hmm. service at the time. And so I grew up being told that I wasn't white because I spoke mm-hmm. Spanish and my mother was Spanish by my friends. You know, and I went to school and played football. And the majority of the mm-hmm. people I went to school with were working class. And in that area in South San Jose, a lot of Mexicans, a lot of Vietnamese, you know, obviously a lot of black people, too. And you you kind of mm-hmm. don't understand how how race functions until you finally get trying to get to college. It was in the nineties. So I 
was, you know, mm-hmm. I put Hispanic on all my stuff. I think that's certainly how I got into school apart from, from sports. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I went to school, I was like, Oh, wow. You know, it's really different here. And, you know, <laughs> It took me many years to understand that that difference was a socioeconomic background more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, I was joking today with my wife. I was like, my identity is survival. And it's kind of like a, mm. you know, I think kind of a bleak way to look at it. But a lot of my friends that I grew up with, that literally is their identity. They got it, whatever they got into, it was because they had to survive. And, uh, you know, what they get into is what's in their environment. And so, yeah, go ahead. I didn't interrupt. Well, anyway, no, I, I don't know if I was getting anywhere past that, but you know, I think that's something that's, you know, I think identity politics and the focus on the identitarian, you know, language gets me frustrated because I think it's been corporatized and taken over to really squash any sort of discussion on, uh, the socioeconomic imbalances we have in, in our country. Well, let me ask you this, uh, Tyus, because what you described is something that, again, came up in the episode a little bit. And I can't remember if it's the part that was public. Only 30, 30 minutes of it was on YouTube, right? The You can watch the full episode yeah. if you did it, you know. Yeah, I'm a member, but I just watched the YouTube out of convenience. Okay, well, I, I feel like I love this episode so much that a part of me wants to, like, <laughs> unpaywall it. Just to be clear, we're not making, like, strategic paywall decisions. It's like... We do that. No, totally. Just, like, Before I was a member, other, when you used to unpay other... all stuff, I used to be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, at one point in the conversation, I talk about my little dust up with Richie Torres and how I was joking with this guy, like, oh, if we get married, I take your last name and I have this Latino last name, then what does that do for me? You know what yeah, I mean? Like, I remember that. And, you know, yeah. you know. Richie Torres does have a Latino parent, but he wasn't raised by that parent. And I believe, I'm sorry if I'm misunderstanding his story, but, um, you know, that he doesn't really speak Spanish and, you know, it's like his black mother and his last name. And, you know, I have a black mother and I could have a Latino last name. And so what does that start to mean? And, you know, I'm sure some people listening to your story and thinking, oh, well, he's not Latino. He's, you know, European and, you know, Spain is Europe. And, yeah, now I'm not Hispanic even, even anymore. Well, I'm you white technically now. are Hispanic because that's just linguistic, right? But you're not. No, Latino. but like, you know, at the time in the 90s, that was what it was. Yeah. Right. So, but, but one might also argue, okay, why, you know, why are we policing this when there's, you know, some person from Argentina who might be ethnically 100% German, <laughs> but, but doesn't no, totally. count as Latino or Brazil. As, because they or you know, because they are from Latin America. Uh, and these are not like super easy questions. And we know we were talking about someone like Elizabeth Warren, you know, say she does actually have some percentage of Native American, you know, heritage, blood, you know, but hasn't been raised in a context where she is familiar with any particular tribe or any cultural identity or knowledge or know-how or language or anything, you know, does it serve the purpose of affirmative action programs, which we can interrogate the value in you know, promise of affirmative action pro- programs, but does it serve the stated purpose of those programs for someone like her to go? Totally. Does it serve the stated pro- program, purpose of the program for someone like you to go as a Latino? Are you more or less doing the, if you were to grow, if you grew up in a Latino community that was, you know, economically disadvantaged, is it more or less appropriate for you to be in that spot as an affluent Argent- Argentine with German heritage? You know, like it's, it's, 
it's a little, it's, as Thomas would say, it's nonsense. It's all nonsense. <laughs> it really, you know, it really is. You know, it's, it's similar though. I, you know, I went to art school for graduate school and uh, then properly became a PMC after that. But, um, you know, most of the people that I knew that got full rides came mm-hmm. from actually affluent backgrounds. So basically, mm-hmm. you know, the whole, you know, you and, and even my scholarship was something I was told wasn't something that you would put on a, a CV because it was based on need. So like, you know, this need based, you know, anything support is something that's I think has been you know, um, to the point where it's not even used. And, you know, in, in Europe, this happens actually a lot of is, you know, the rich or the people who are more well off, more well connected are able to take advantage of the social safety net better than the actual people, the social safety nets made for. That's right. That's right. And I'm, and I'm going to take the next, I appreciate you Titus, but I will say that, um, my, I've talked about this in the podcast, but you know, a friend who is white lives in a, um, historically like a like a gentrifying let's say neighborhood like a lower income neighborhood here in dc and because he's a, technically a business owner that lives in that neighborhood he got some like ten thousand dollar grant right because it's not about it's like who lives in the space not whether they're actually needy themselves or a person of color or anything like that meanwhile i'm not moving to that neighborhood because it's a legitimately dangerous neighborhood and i'm a woman and i just don't want to be walking around at night he had someone you know killed out in front of his house a few months ago um, really regrettably. And so it's like this weird, you know, I don't feel as safe in the area because I'm not a huge white man who's, you know, if you're a black woman, you're more likely to be, you know, there's a certain comfort level people have to coming up and giving you a little bit of a hard time in their spaces. And, you know, that it's a weird kind of catch 22 and advantage he has that like makes me crazy and makes me crazy that he gets that loan. Right. But it is what it is. And I think a lot of these programs are not structured. Uh, ideally, uh, we have Thomas next up. Hi, thanks for uh, having me on. It's my pleasure. What were you? What have you been thinking about today, Thomas? Well, uh, I listened to the episode with uh, Thomas Jackson Williams, which I, I quite enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really know much about him outside of the uh, Twitter pylons, I guess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was nice to see that he's actually like kind of an interesting guy. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I, I, I noticed that was referenced a lot in the conversation occasionally would be uh, Adolf Reed, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what I noticed in his, in the way he spoke about race is that he sort of was almost like flirting with Reedanism, you know? He was like kind of almost at like Adolf Reed's idea of race, but what's, couldn't quite what's get there. Breedonism? Like breed, like, a, like, like, a, like a, no, no, read, read, like Adolf Reed. Oh, about to say, is this like, yeah, yeah. Is no, this no, some like, <laughs> no, no, I, I thought you meant like breed, yeah. like a, a collie versus a spaniel versus an Airedale. <laughs> like, oh, oh, like gosh, I was like, oh no, gosh, no. what? Who? Let me, let me get comfortable <laughs> because I have to learn a lot today. Okay, no, readinism. Oh, gotcha. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a readian, I guess maybe that's a better way to put it. Readian. <laughs> view of uh of race and i think i've also sort of noticed that in sort of the way you think about race maybe a little bit but i don't know if you Mm. go the full read and so i would wonder what is your what are your hesitations about going you know yeah 
about going full read? Well, what, yeah. is, what does going full read mean to you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think, I think part of it, I think, well, for instance, one of the things that was mentioned in the conversation is I think the idea that there is like a shared racial identity built through the, the shared struggle. Mm-hmm. I think Reed would kind of deny that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he would say, yeah, you maybe think that, but it kind of just works for a very small group. And their struggle, they don't really share it. Like, for instance, like wealthy black people or the bourgeois black class, they might try and mm-hmm. make it seem like they have a shared struggle with you, but eh, not really. It's all just going to benefit, you know, rebound to their benefit and not to you know, the working class black people. Yeah. Well, I wish Bertrand Cooper, uh, he, it turns out, does not have an iPhone, and we didn't realize that, and that's why he's (laughs) not here, but he sends his regrets. I wish he were here for this, though, because, you know, the article that he wrote for Current Affairs and that we had him on the podcast to to discuss um, was about this question of, uh, you know, who gets to make black art? All the black creators are so elite and highly educated and are detached from a working class background, which is true, I think, of most people in elite fields, regardless of race. But because Black creators are often telling Black stories, which tend to be about struggle for better or for worse, he was arguing that it was both misrepresented the experience in some instances and also perpetuated, you know, the economic stratification within the Black community. Now, I am no fan of uh, the black journalistic uh, intelligentsia. As people know, I am blocked by Joanne Reed, et cetera, et cetera. However, I would say, I think that as, as someone who has been working comms, it is obvious to me that despite a certain level of um, economic advantage, those black interlocutors still do care about black issues to a degree, reliably, that white journalists don't necessarily do. So even if I can't get someone like Jason Johnson to like commit to Medicare for all, I know that if a black person gets killed, he's going to reliably, by the police, he's going to reliably kind of be on my side, as it were, about what's happened. And the issues that they tend to care about, I would agree with Reed, are issues that could also happen to them, right? So they're not strictly economic, and like we all know that social economics predicts what run-ins you have with the police and the number of run-ins you have with the police. And the Philando Castile case was all about how he had all of those tickets, dozens and dozens of tickets, because he lived in a place where the um, town was funded. The city was funded in large part by taxing the poor through ticketing and asset forfeiture. And he was caught up in that system. And it was only a matter of time before one of those encounters went bad, right? Uh, so it's not something you can rely on. And I would agree with Reed on that. At the same time, I wouldn't say that there is no solidarity. I think that only race makes them care about those issues to the extent that they do very clearly care about them and that there's opportunities there for gain in terms of comms and like broader sol- solidarity. I think when I talk to people like that and crowds like that, I say to them, hey, Medicare for all should matter to you because Black people are disproportionately un- and underinsured, you know, 
I, I say to them, oh, you should care about uh, Medicare for all because the biggest predictor of bad maternal health outcomes is being on Medicaid and black women on Medicaid are given substandard care because there's a presumption that they're poor, yada, 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 and all this kind of stuff. So I'm not entirely willing to say that there isn't something shared there that is useful. And like I said on the episode, I'm not entirely sure what my politics would be if I had had the kind of advantages and privileges that I've had in life and could completely escape Blackness or didn't have family members that were still marginalized as a result of what they look like, right? And to know that my own status is so vulnerable because the Black middle class is so precarious and that there isn't a deep bench of wealth for me to fall back on if I were to fall on hard times. So I don't know. I I, I do think that there is... Um, there's there's something there. Thomas, are you still there? Did I? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Thomas. <laughs> it's okay. I think I got, yeah, <laughs> moved off the speaker thing. My bad. No, it's all good. Uh, I, think, I think that's a fair point. Uh, I think that's a good point. I think, I think Reed's retort might be that, like, Jason Johnson might talk about or kind of care about the issue, but probably would never actually sign on to anything that would solve it. Well, Jason Johnson is Jason Johnson. Well, yeah, yeah, but, sure, sure, sure. No, no, but, but I mean, you know what I mean, like Joanne Reed but, yeah, or whatever, but, you know. Well, I said this to Bertrand, too. Like, I was I was kind of with him on, you know, I, I, I was with him that obviously I'm not going to argue that there shouldn't be more low-income Black creators and more low-income creatives, creators of every variety. But I also was a little uneasy with the idea that it seemed like he was policing a bit who could tell black stories on this kind of strict economic basis. Cause it's like a lot of us are in a kind of limbo where we, it's not, you know, we're very proximate still to lower income working class and, and poor people in our own lives and our own family. I think your average white, my average white peer from law school doesn't go home to Cleveland and liaise regularly with cousins and family members who have been incarcerated or, you know, who live at or near poverty. And, you know, I, 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 I'm attenuated from that for sure. I'm not going to pretend I don't live in a, in a very privileged space, but I'm always hyper-conscious of the fact that I'm very, very close to it and have familiarity firsthand with a different kind of life, not to the extent that Bertrand does having lived it obviously, but, I think close enough to credibly tell certain kinds of stories. And I think that is a very typical of a black middle-class experience in a way that I think is a little bit more atypical of other groups. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. If I can, just for a brief second, I kind of yeah. want to touch on another subject. Sure. Which was, I think the idea of Marxism as collectivism, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of a popular notion, but not exactly accurate. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I hear you, Thomas. <laughs> I just couldn't. Like, I just, I really had to. It was like, pick your battles, Brianna. Pick your battles, Brianna. <laughs> yeah, um, should you want to? Yeah, I just, I couldn't. I, and we should have him back. Like, I, I really appreciate how generous he was at this time and willing he was to sit down and go through it. I think there's a, a, predict, a, a potentially really productive series of conversations we could have where we say, we're going to each read one thing 
like we each propose a reading, we read each other's readings and we sit down and we confine our debate to the four corners of whatever it was that we read. Um, so if you guys have suggestions for what we should do in the next uh, chats with Andrew Sullivan series, <laughs> I'm happy to take them. Has uh, Sullivan ever read Marx, like outside of maybe the Communist Manifesto? I don't know, but like I said in the episode, and uh, people can come from so. my neck over this, neither have I. But can I, can I say that that's a little bit of a strategic choice? Um, Sure. You, you know, I mean, this is this is a whole other thing, but I, I, I do feel like sometimes people, especially academics and elites and highly educated people tend to talk in terms that have been defined by other people instead of just saying what they mean. And we can debate Marx or we can take the ideas from Marx and the insights about how society works and talk about the society we live in today and how it could and should be different. And if you are having a conversation about, about Marx, on some level you're having a proxy war and the debate is won or lost based on how much you can cite Marx or Hobbes or Locke or whoever else we're talking about. And as someone who is not especially well-versed in any of those gentlemen and also doesn't necessarily feel like it's important to be able to cite chapter and verse as much as it is to have taken the kind of intellectual inheritance and the ideas and be able to apply them in a useful way today. I think that sometimes a lot of these conversations go nowhere because people are talking about what they think Marx is or what they claim Marx says and nobody's sitting down with the text in front of them. And it's just people throwing terms at each other that nobody understands. Let's just say what we mean. Okay, you don't like Marx, fine. Without using the word Marx, tell me what you don't like about this idea, you know? Um, I'm going to move along because the queue is queuing, but thank you for that, Thomas. Thank you. Oh, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to invite you to speak, Thomas. I mean, sorry, Michael. That was a lie. Wait a minute. Let me just make you the next caller. Okay. Well, you're up here, Michael. So uh, let me move you from speakers, but let you speak. Oh, shoot. Did I send you to the back of the queue? I'm sorry. If you come back, I'll, pu I'll pull you back to the front again. My apologies. I just don't know how to work this. My apologies. Um, Cam, you're up. Hey, Brianna, can you hear me? I can hear you, Cam. Okay, great. Hey, I've been listening to Bad Faith since you started the podcast. It's amazing. Love Thank you, Cam. To every single episode. And this one was probably my favorite one of all of them. Oh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, well, it speaks to me in many ways because, okay, a little bit background in my particular situation. Mm -hmm. I am a white guy, grew up in New Orleans, son of a jazz musician. Mm -hmm. So, because my dad was a jazz musician, I grew up around people, mo you know, a great deal of black Americans. Um, grew up relatively poor, because I'm the son of a jazz musician. <laughs> <laughs> uh, various types of public assistance and going to public schools that were not the greatest in the world and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I felt like I saw some different things outside of what maybe the average everyday white person would maybe see, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm around black people all the time and I'm at a school where I am very much the minority. Many times where I was one of maybe only one or two white kids in the class. Um, I was a victim of a hate mm -hmm. crime in middle school, you know, 
things like that. I mean, it just happened. Um, but going toward what, what Thomas Chatterton Williams is that I did grow up and I've been married twice, both times to a different Af- African-American woman. And I mm-hmm. have three biracial children. And mm-hmm. it is it is something very unique when you look at your children and you see yourself in them. You do not mm-hmm. see that, you know, as a white person, I don't look at my children. I mean, of course, I know they are biracial, and that's how we raise them. We don't raise them. I look at the one-drop rule mm-hmm. as a remnant of white supremacy. Um, and we raise them that they are both, to embrace all that they are. And I really appreciate that from Thomas Jared Williams, that he, you know, he, it, it's sometimes it's an eye-opening thing when you have these children and you see, you see just some, something different, how foolish some of this is. But bringing back to some of the things that you said about how culturally there are things that tie groups together. And that's what, it just spoke to me so much about how, in, a, in some ways, I think that it could bring people together when you do merge cultures, you can appreciate cultures, and, you know, by the way that I've been raised, there are many times when I feel more comfortable around my in-laws than I do my own family. <laughs> and because, mm-hmm. uh, and, and look, I'm a lot of guy who listens to Slipknot and wears, you know, I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not one of these stereotypical types, I guess you would say. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I feel like maybe I might not have had, uh, obviously I haven't had certain struggles, but I've seen them. I've experienced mm-hmm. certain struggles that many of my, uh, many other white people maybe didn't have struggled, but I've seen many struggles and I just want to just really just pr- he preys on the open conversation and the earnestness and the, how you all just had, the, it was eye opening. And uh, I guess I just wanted to, I, don't, I guess I don't have as much of a question. Um, although I, one of the things that I'll, I guess I will bring this to a policy type thing, Bernie, hmm. 2016 mm-hmm. version, Bernie, mm-hmm. he appealed to me in a way that no politician previously ever had other than maybe Nader in 2000 mm-hmm. because he preached class. He preached unity. And I've, and I really, um, I subscribe to that Adolf Reed model where I really, and maybe it's partially because of how I grew up where I, I really see the struggles that many of us face as class struggles. And mm-hmm. so the 2016 version, and I guess, you know, the point of that conversation, I think you and Thomas actually share so much because if y'all kind of merge the two of your beliefs together, that's Bernieism right there. That's, that's, you know, by bringing, by showing all the commonality in class struggles that we face 
and they're not always racial. You know, there are certain yeah. racial things, but um, I, I don't know. Do you, I guess I'll I've rambled a little bit, and <laughs> you know. no, I I appreciate that, Cam. That it, it was a very thoughtful, a very thoughtful statement. I appreciate you sharing about your own your own family and upbringing. I guess I'd say. I'm I, I'm very sensitive to the fact that I've had an atypical experience for anyone, the way I was brought up and living overseas and all that jazz. And has felt always a little bit in between, mm-hmm. right? Because it has conferred certain privileges on me, but also they weren't privileges that came from just having a lot of money. So my parents were teachers. I got to go to private schools, but because my parents became teachers at mm-hmm. international schools so that I could go for free, right? It was like a loophole. So... Mm-hmm. You know, and as a consequence of having that education, it gave me a leg up to get into, you know, elite colleges. And so I feel like I live a little bit of a double life, but it certainly will never deny the privileges that I have. And when I reflect on the privileges I, that I've had, it makes me very clear eyed about how dis- how many how disadvantaged other people are and makes me really sensitive to white people in particular who are frustrated with a, a really basic version of the privilege narrative that pretends that racial privilege is the only kind of um, stratification that matters, the only kind of privilege hierarchy that matters. And racial hierarchies obviously do matter, but their intersectionality means, it should mean, the whole point of intersectionality is to say there's all these other axes of privilege that exist in the world, including class, obviously, right? And I think that part of why I have always been very open to very into Bernie's message, more receptive to a kind of uh, class-driven messaging is because I have experienced the limits of how a racial hierarchy can describe where I am and what I've been able to have have in my life. And I almost feel guilt. I mean, I feel I'm very sensitive to poor white people who are telling me this is my life and I'm supposed to sit here and just claim that I've had it worse when I obviously haven't. I, I mean, I haven't. Right. And it frustrates me that certain other black people I know who are also privileged just don't want to sometimes give any ground there at all. Like, they, you know, a lot of people want to pretend like being white truly just means you've never had a problem in your life. So I, I go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I, I look at my two marriages. My first wife, uh, she was she had had it rough in many ways in mm-hmm. many ways much worse than me her family was very poor had mm-hmm. you know had six brothers and sisters living in a very small mm-hmm. house and everything and it was tough on her and everything and you know you could just see you know she had that struggle that struggle that you just so often hear about mm-hmm. and then my current wife you know she her parents owned their home their grandparents she's inherited Mm. property and (laughs) you know did she have a brother (laughs) did she have a brother (laughs) she does but he's probably a little too young for you (laughs) damn i thought you were gonna say too old too young goodness gracious he's uh what 22 i think (laughs) all right yeah Yeah. i mean you're right (laughs) yeah yeah um but you know but at the end of the day you know it is so interesting because she, she and she'll say she's lived a charmed life and everything. She don't, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, we talk about, you know, one of the things when you are in a relationship like this is that you have those intimate conversations about 
real mm -hmm. stuff. You don't, you know, you, you, the gloss is kind of removed and, you know, you, you just get down and actually talks about things. And, and, you know, I guess you can always play the comparison game and it's like, she certainly had it much better. And it's a, and one of the things that, you know, I heard in the, in the talk with Thomas was that the commonality of struggle Oh my, mm -hmm. my second wife, she 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 makes it very plain. She takes pride in almost in the fact that she hasn't struggled. Mm. And, and how did that feel for you as someone who has struggled? Was that something did you experience that loss, a, a loss of not having a partner who identified in that way? No, no, mm. because in, uh, and I'll tell you tell you part of it is that I've wanted to I've wanted to raise our children without having to feel that struggle and i've appreciated the fact you know yes these are biracial children but i do not want them ever feeling that they are victims to a system or anything of that nature i want them to feel that they are capable of anything and everything and but what does that mean cam because you know like i said i've grown up with a certain amount of privilege but i do still feel a certain degree of racial struggle solidarity not because of you know you know having lived in I think real a real hand to mouth situation, but because I have a sense of I think mm -hmm. racial consciousness that is informed by the reality that racial hierarchies have affected my life and my family's outcomes, even if it hasn't literally meant that I've grown up low income. And there's an argument that right. I mean I think part of the argument that's being made is that to be black is to have that sense of identity and that kind of struggle identity. Um, regardless of what your personal circumstances are, and that that's what people are looking for in each other. And I certainly, in the one interracial relationship that I've been in, I appreciate, like, I don't know if it would have worked if he hadn't come from a working class background with parents who are postal workers and growing, you know what I mean? Like, I thought that on some level, I, I could be open. We were coming on, we're on the same page. I could be, I was kind of safe in it. Because despite our, our having these racial, coming from a different racial or cultural background, we had that in common. Yeah, there, there, uh, there's a certain level. Um, I think it's almost un ex an expectation of understanding from the person mm -hmm. and, that uh -huh. you're that you're there with. Mm -hmm. And and you know, let's just let's just we I think we all know how the average white liberal is with mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the, the they, they love all their buzzwords and they are so performative and yet sometimes they appear to have some of the most racial slip-ups of anyone you know next to don you know next to the mm -hmm. really bad people uh what did our president say today something about negroes <laughs> i i like i scroll past i couldn't deal with it today <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness and then you had some people making excuses i couldn't i i just no what was it crystal balls at, at on on breaking points she oh yeah i saw it. <laughs> she, yeah. Had, she had actually so this is why I, they call me crystal ball because i predicted it <laughs> she did that morning and sure enough there it is but yeah <laughs> but but there, there is a certain understanding and i can recognize that but once again i think i think it just it's a it's a more maybe just a class thing than. And yet your, your current wife um, doesn't subscribe. You said she doesn't, you know, she doesn't subscribe to that kind of mentality and that you, I want to pick up on something no. you said, you said you didn't want your kids to feel like 
like a victim. And I would say I don't think the struggle, feeling a sense of struggle solidarity, I don't think it's the same thing as feeling like you were necessarily a victim or victimized by society. Because I certainly don't feel that way either. And yet when I was talking to Thomas, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I, I think I would feel a sense of loss if whether, you know, rightly or wrongly, I want to be honest about the fact that I think I would feel a sense of loss if I had a child who completely didn't identify as what it meant to be at all an outsider. I mean, even if I think I I was a nerd, I think if I had a kid who was really cool, like I'm happy for them to be cool. Obviously, I don't want my kid to be picked on or anything. But yeah, similarly, I would feel a kind of loss. Like, (laughs) oh, you don't know what it's like to be quirky and artsy and an outsider and to kind of struggle through high school. Mm -hmm. I think that's like something Mm -hmm. kind of normal about that even if it's if i don't even if i don't attach a value to it you know it is and it but it it, it expresses itself in so many different ways for children mm. it could be like you say being artsy or or in drama or music it could be in you know it could be in identifying as very you know in in as part of various groups and everything um but no, I, and I do, and this is where it, it, the conversation was so valuable because I I do understand, even though I think I, at the bottom of my heart I agree with Thomas, but there are issues that come from you that where you're saying, and I do understand it, I do I do, but mm-hmm. at the same token, I, I've I've been a, the type of person to just you know see kumbaya and try to bring bridge people together you know i will go to my white family members and i will talk about tony tempa and to try to wake them up that hey you know police brutality this is not just a racial issue this is a horrible issue for everyone now we can definitely say that it's disproportionate for sure but this is a issue for everyone Mm -hmm. that you know Mm -hmm we should all care about and everything. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's some white people that the only way that they'll care about it is if it is for everyone. Cause some things like what you've said just even today, if you bring, if you bridge, and I guess mm-hmm. I've always been the type to want to bridge, bridge things, but mm-hmm. to bring this back to my children and there's a certain narrative sometimes right now where it just seems like, and whether or not this is a correct perspective or not, and I definitely can say maybe I'm wrong, that sometimes there's a certain thing where, you know, if you're black or, or something, the world is against you. It's, you know, you're you're behind the eight ball already and things like that. And when I say about the victim, that's what I'm talking about. I don't want them to feel like they're behind the eight ball before they've taken a breath. But Cam, doesn't, if we're talking about structural racism, which, you know, Andrew Sullivan would argue doesn't exist, but if we're talking about legal systems, uh, by all kind of bias that is uh, expressed through the way that police behave, et cetera, et cetera, you know, isn't mm-hmm. it the case that the world is in some ways rigged against you? Now, Andrew would say, no, you have your individuality. And of course you do. And we all live our lives and we make the best of what we can. And we have some autonomy and free will. But, you know, yeah. when when people say things like, I don't want them to think the world is rigged against them, I think to myself, oh, I don't want some poor kid. Like, I've talked to some other biracial people who 
went out into the world, discovered the world was rigged against them, and were pretty chagrined that they hadn't been prepared for that reality, you know? Yeah, and I do think it's somewhat generational, too. I think it's getting better with every successive generation, to be honest. Um, you know, mm-hmm. certainly yours and my generations, those biracial children definitely had it harder. And, you know, everybody of, you know, of of all ADOS, you know, or anybody of African-American mm-hmm. descent would have had it tougher mm-hmm. than I think what's kind of there as much now. Not saying that it's wiped away, but I guess... Maybe this is the white person in me, and I'm willing to take that charge. <laughs> um, and I'm willing to take that charge, but uh, I just, I don't want to, you know, I'd rather them go through life and that you, everybody will expend, everybody, unless you're, you know, certain extremely wealthy people, you know, most everybody working in middle class, they're going to fight, have their struggles. They're going to have their struggles. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to go through life that it's because of their skin color. And but what if it? But but Kim, don't we acknowledge that some of it is? And, and I'm totally with you on all this stuff about you know, like like I said, like obviously there's most poor people in America are white. Like the struggle knows no uh, color, but. It is also, can't it simultaneously be true that there are, are these specific kinds of oppression that are racial in nature and that it's, it's not only okay, but sort of necessary to prepare people for, for that, that reality of the world as well. Is it premature to just basically <sighs> pretend that we're already there? Possible. Uh, I'll, yeah. I'll, uh, I'm willing to give that it's possible. I, and once again, uh, I'm, uh, and it's, you know, these are things that, you know, my wife and I will talk about and, and about how we want to, okay, mm-hmm. do, how much do we really want to talk about this racial incident? How do we talk about, you know, various things that are on the news and all, and, but we just always want to bring it back to that. You all are, you know, this is what happened to this person. You don't have to be afraid because of it. Sometimes I think the media mm. is the type that it it preps people, it preps up everyone into feeling almost into a frenzy and a scared type situation. And I don't want. I just. I, I, I just don't want that. No, I hear you. I don't want that. That was really that was an insightful statement. I think I understand now. I mean, I don't have kids, but I can appreciate that. I mean, balance. You don't want your kids to be afraid. You don't want your kids to be sitting there anxious no. and, and stirred up, anticipating stuff, especially I, I guess that's, at a pretty young age. So, I mean, that's. I, well, let's see if we can get some other parents in here. I really appreciate you. Kim. Yeah, yeah. If I don't know if there are any other black no, parents who I appreciate your time or other. Yeah, parents no, I want to hear have, some more what uh, some other people have to say about the matter and all too. And Grandma, thank you so much for. Uh, no, thank you for being so open thing. and sensitive. I would all love right. to hear. Oh, thank you, thank you, Cam. I would love to hear, by the way. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I meant to, I made Steve next, but I should have made, oh, um, Home Slice, who I accidentally skipped. I think his name was Michael, is no longer in the queue. I'm sorry, Michael, if you're still down there in the chat. Um, I want to hear I want to hear a panel with um, Cam's current wife, Cam's ex-wife, and Cam having a conversation about their relative perspectives on what to tell the kids 
um, given that he, you know, they each had a different perspective on kind of race and struggle based on their backgrounds. Steve, you are up. What's what's crackalacking? Steve, you're unmuted, but I can't hear you. Steve with a white beard and a dark colored button down shirt. All right, I'm gonna go ahead to David. Steve, if you come back to the queue, then I'll put you up front again. David. Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you, David. Hear you, Excellent. David. Thank you, thank you. What a title. What? Oh, <laughs> uh, let, let me let me sprinkle a few things with regards to my background, and then I'll I'll get to a to to, a, to some question. But so I'm a I'm sure. a boomer, and uh, grew up in a trailer. I'm Mexican American, and learned about my identity. Over time, although my mother didn't speak any English and my father spoke some English. And I I just kind of lay that background because what I learned Mm. um, growing up and then uh, I got to the Valley, Silicon Valley in the mid-2000s and stuff, is is, is just a need to respect people on their journey. That's an important thing. Mm. My college roommate at Stanford was John McWhorter. So, yes. Yes, I love John, mm. and I love what he's contributed to the conversation that we have here in America. Um, I have a slightly different view, mm-hmm. you know, and so, but that's 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 what makes mm. that's what makes our our journey special in the world, right? Yeah, and then the word parent. Mm-hmm. You said parenting, and I can tell you, yeah, the perspectives mm-hmm. change quite a bit once you're a parent. Um. So let me let me let me just back a few more things into this, which is I think something that's missing is just the important importance of nuance um, in, in the conversations mm-hmm. about about this whole topic. Um, I don't want to move past race because it it's an important uh, it's an important nexus on the socioeconomic and all of these. It's 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 one of the it's the catharsis. It's it's the tough thing that America has contributed to humanity, and we fail at it miserably. But it's 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 a tough conversation that humanity has to keep having, mm-hmm. right? But the conversation gets goes off the rails in a you know often, right? So that's that's one thing. If we can, I, I'll I'll propose a few ideas of of some some threads that I try to use to get back inside going off the rails, I suppose. Um, that I've tried to do over over the years. Um, so, so from an economic perspective, like you, you had mentioned, Marxism and collectivism and stuff like that, and I think it's important. I really appreciate what you had to say about like you couldn't whip out all the specific books and this and that, but you shouldn't have to, because anybody who studied poli sci one hundred and one can see what is going on when somebody inserts Marxism in a conversation about a social program. It is not, it, mm-hmm. it, it is not, and to even use the word politics is not the right word to use either because politics and, if you go back a generation plus, there was a healthier, although, I'll say a healthier collaboration, but that collaboration was a little too far to the right because of the, you know, as evidenced by the rise of corporate power, you know, and, and stuff. So, so, mm-hmm. 
the, um, the, the one one thread that I try to throw into this conversation and why it's important though is, is also is allyship and allyship over the years is really important you know and in the, uh, the the I, I call it sh- what does that what does allyship mean to you allyship means people is and this is the context I use because I'm kind of a nerd too. Is somebody with approximately the same shade of gray matter between their ears, regard regardless? No, it's it's important though, right? Because <laughs> we have these shades of color. I was more fair skinned in a Mexican family than my older brother, and we had those dynamics of of just you know as you know we just those, those the the color dynamics, right? Uh, once you go out the mm-hmm. front door, you mm-hmm. know, uh, mm-hmm. at home. But having a, a, approximately the same you know, shared shade of gray, because, I mean, if I were to write a book on the topic, I would name it something like that, right? But Well, that's what I almost named, well, what I almost named this podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we should cultivate that as a conversation, because because at the, at the beginning, the middle, the end of the day, and y'all, this pendulum keeps going back and forth if you go back into U.S. history, but, but we have an opportunity, you know, as I look to the sky, to... to to really try to pull pull this together in a way that helps us as humankind faces an existential threat with climate change. So what key weaving into that is going to be that hopefully we can get this allyship team humanity really to grow. And so another piece here, because just as I mentioned with the Marxism is a very concerted express that 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 is a power communication play when somebody throws marxism into a conversation about social programs yeah you might even say it's bad faith faith. because they're not saying what they disagree with the program about (laughs) they're they think conceptually conceptually the program is doing something that they don't believe it should do because people they're going to get into an argument about people being not deserving that it's not a social good because anything we're talking about is giving people who need help help right? right and so the only you can't it's not easy for people to argue. I don't think children should get food. I don't think families should get more money. I don't think education should be free. That makes you sound like a monster. So what you have to say is, I don't think it's fair for some people to get something that other people don't get. I don't think it's fair for the undeserving poor. I think it's socially corrosive for people not to have to work for what they get. Um, I think that we need to value something called individualism and giving all of these people things destroys their ability to want to achieve and succeed and go forth into the world as individuals. So you, so you have to create a proxy battle because the second we start talking about, do you or do you not think children in the richest country in the world should be go hung- be going hungry, then, you know, no one wants to look like fully grinched out. <laughs> no, that's a, more, right? you, you, you are so articulate. I really, really appreciate that. And the other piece of that is corporate welfare. Let's normalize mm-hmm. how the tax system works right and just how government works because i mean look at the fossil fuels and all the, the you know all the discovery and money that's given to them and and all the tax breaks and look at the corporate tax the effective court excuse me the effective corporate taxing that, that's done here right so that is another nuance that needs to be a part of that conversation too and 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 then so on the parenting thing you you did you were hoping to get a few parents and i i waited i, I was a single Man, mm-hmm. for 40 years, man, I waited. I just waited and waited because of the whole, like, wait until you're ready. And th- that's a whole discovery mm-hmm. process. The 20s, the 30s, who you date, and all of that. And I'll tell you, you know, as you go through that process, 
you you know you you most of your life is going to be as a parent so uh, well, i think it'd be wise to cultivate more of a conversation among single people to just have those questions about hey what kind of a parent do you think you'll be you know and, and make lots of observation because i think you had said a little mm-hmm. bit maybe 20 minutes ago about you know it it being okay because like being the outsider boy when you're when you're a mom someday mm-hmm. if that's the path you choose to take and if that's the path Oh man, you get very protective. You get <laughs> so so. What, the, the context. Let me, let, let me no, get let it, me, David. If my child me, is cool, it'll be a disaster. No, no, me, like I will. Ugh, what if they're an asshole? <laughs> so so my wife is is like this totally like amazing preschool teacher because she's got a master's degree and she's got she's got that special just it's her gift. And so we've talked mm-hmm. about this a lot and 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 confidence. You know the character, the, the 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 confidence in their creativity. They're like she came up with a bunch of C's. Like, compassion, like apparently, apparently humans mm-hmm. learn empathy in in their first few mm-hmm. years. And then mm-hmm. I've kind of cultivated this idea that we're all six year olds. Like literally, we, like like we never get past mm-hmm. six because the way we resolve conflict and the basics of our confidence are kind of laid down with our initial wiring through the five six and stuff like that. But but I guess, uh, you know, that there is a whole lot more co- cultivated conversation about race, especially with people that are looking to mix, that have a sh- shared gray matter, but then they are kind of open to to possibly marrying, you know, just a- along that whole continuum and kind of, there is a whole lot of like, you know, what kind of parenting, what kind of a parent you would be? Well, David, let me ask you, is your, is your wife also Mexican She's Salvadoran. She's not, so it's very okay. it's on the same kind of rail kind of track kind of sort of but 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 let me let me get uh, mm-hmm. go ahead ask your question well i would ask did you did you talk to your kids about race and at what point and what did you how did you introduce it to them and why my we had we're cultivating we're cultivating all those conversations my daughter is still very young mm. <laughs> she she's yeah, she's right here. So, how how old is she? She's she's six. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and that that's your only child, the daughter. Your yeah, daughter? yeah, 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 yeah. So, so has it come up? Does she know that she's something called Latina? You know, does she know that that's a thing? Yeah. So, so yeah. Then we had the Dia 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 de Muertos and stuff like that. Yeah. So we mm-hmm. cultivate those conversations, and she's had friends of of different of of of, of, of you know Asian, you know African American, all all of that really, and African even everything. So. Well, Thomas might argue that that to celebrating, you know, Day of the Dead is like a cultural thing that is not, you know, and and you can say culturally Mexican, or I'm sure there's many different cultural identities within Mexico, but that is something separate and apart from a racial identity. And obviously Latina isn't a race either, but it's something broader and closer to what we think of as race um, in this country. And I think it's probably easier to introduce, I I would guess aspects of one's culture because everyone even these you know, you know white people have cult you know culture i'm irish american i'm italian american whatever mm-hmm. um but that is a little less thorny than race which in america seems to be a- about hierarchies of oppression like that's the reason it comes up no i i tend to totally agree with what you said and i think that we do need to, to talk more and, and educate people on the differences that it, it, and that's not even a nuance right between race and ethnicity right and then culture and then culture wow that's a whole you know the dominant culture is is how our worldview kind of plugs into that stuff right so 
So then there's the, there's the, and subcultures is a very common context used here in the States. I remember the book, a very famous book in the 90s about cultural literacy. And it was a big flashpoint because it, it basically proposed the mm-hmm. idea that, hey, you know, it's great that you have your own culture, but are you literate in our culture? And there was this big, like, demarcation about, you know, get literate in our culture because that's the important culture rather than really celebrate the nuance. And that's where, kind of getting back to Mm -hmm. the question you posed, is should we move past race? It's like, no, I think we need to learn how to celebrate it. We need to learn how to, to, and I hate the word respect, because Mm -hmm. it's it's another word that that people who don't respect anybody will use, well, I respect you, but, you know... Like tolerance. Yeah. Like tolerance. Tolerance is one of those words. Yeah, it's like... There, there, that's what, that's one of the things that I'm, I really, I, in my, as I age, I'm trying to calm myself before I open my mic and I start to share things. So I'm really hoping to try to be a bridge as much as I can, but it gets challenging at times when, when, when those who know better should just knock it off because they start to influence the, the vernacular that we're using in our conversation. And we've got to, you know, we're, we're kind of in degradation mode in this whole topic, you know? And it's sad. It's it's a heart wrenching thing. And like I said, when you're my age and you have a six year old, you see what's happening to the clima, the, the climate. You're kind of there's we got we have to come together, folks, mm-hmm. on 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 a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, I. I I, love- well, I appreciate you, David. Thank you for that. Look, I'm gonna yeah, we're yes. we're coming up Thank on the you. end of hour two. Um, so I'm gonna close it off. And Ernie's gonna be the last uh, speaker, and I'm gonna invite Wiz Ward up to speak now and try to get through these last three and wrap up for the night. You guys have been really great and very patient. Am I doing this right? No. Did I do this right? Oh, goodness gracious. I was on such a roll. Wiz? Um, oh, it skipped over Wiz for some reason. M? Sorry, Wiz. If you come back up, I'll take you. Uh, M, you're going to have to unmute yourself. Hey, Brianna. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Em? I'm uh, sorry. I'm I'm Matthew. I just don't have my full name. It's okay. There. I wasn't trying to dox you, Matthew. <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, I just want to start by saying I'm sorry that you don't date Jewish guys because I think you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Shoot. Way to shoot your shot, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> So two real quick provocative points. First of all, I, I really, I love your show uh, so much and have been listening for a long time. Not sure exactly what happened to Virgil, but uh, hope hope to have him back at some point. Um, two two quick provocative points. One is actually just following from what, what the guy before, just previously was saying um, about climate. Um, and I spent the last five years in the sanctuary movement working very closely with undocumented communities that have always been, you know, targeted really mercilessly. But recently, you know, it's gotten even worse. And, um, you know, I think I think we do need to reframe the conversation a little bit from these broad ideological questions just about, you know, race and identity and start thinking about. Uh, how to prepare for, you know, the, the the crises that, again, have been facing undocumented communities and other communities, you know, Black communities for a very long time, certain, certain Black communities, I guess I would say, class dependent. Um, 
but 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 these kinds of crises are affecting more I, i'm in new york as well i live i live in brooklyn and these kinds of crises you know storms are hitting and um you know health you know public health issue obviously current moment is clear clearest example that's on a mass scale on a global scale um but really i mean what you know i i think to to invert the question a little bit not you know not so much you know how does race um you know how, how does race racial identity support who we want to be and who we you know want to become but how does it prevent us in in, in moments of including the current moment all over, whether you're in Brooklyn living on the water or whether you're in California living in a forest fire or whether, you know, you're in the South on, you know, living in New Orleans or Houston or wherever. I mean, how, how it seems to me that, you know, your conversation about solidarity is, is really at the core. And, and the question is how, how how can we get past the need for looking for, looking to similarities rooted in whether it's race or for that matter class i mean certain class distinctions in a moment of crisis are very pertinent because certain folks just wall themselves off at the top of a mountain and you know bring out their their you know their their guns to protect their property um but but for the most part, even you know middle class or even upper middle class folks, you know, are all all faced with the same kind of threat to survival of these moments of crisis. And how is how, how can we find um, find space for building solidarity, not in spite of race, but through race and ethnicity, but through race? How can we see those as? I mean. Undocumented folks who haven't ever had the support of the state have had to figure out how to serve, how to build the tools, the cultures, the cultural toolkits, the mutual aid groups and indigenous co communities as well to protect each other in moments, you know, where, the, where there's no nothing else to depend on. You know, they're not they can't depend on the state. They can't depend on. Uh, I mean, if you know, so I think the question to me is. Those those histories, those those cultural toolkits that in some cases, particularly in the U.S., but all over align with certain racial identities or racial racial um, racial groups. And those become in, enormous assets in moments where more and more of us are thrust into this per incredible precarity, this incredible threat to our survival. And so just inverting the question, rather than starting with the question of, uh, you know, how do we build our identities? The question to me seems, and I know it was brought up by a couple of folks here and there, how do we think about what our experiences, racial and otherwise, lend to um lend 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 tools that we can contribute to the community as it's, you know, as the waters are rising and the fires are coming closer. So that's I mean, you know, I, I think we really need to so you're asking you're asking if races ultimately can be a benefit and why are we trying to look should we be trying to move past race or should we be seeing the solidaristic value of having I, people being able to relate to each other through their identity well, i mean absolutely let's look at let's look at the benefits and the assets that come from all the different experiences of having never been able to depend on the state uh or you know or uh, or on you know capital or 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 on you know established authority 
My last point, just real quick, I know I went on. Thank you for humoring me. My last point is just a, a, a plug for, um, I, I, I sent you a, a tweet. I don't know if you got it, but it, 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 as, it's saying we should start a Marx reading group. And uh, I, I know that's an unpopular perspective given the previous callers, but I do think that there's something, I mean, a lot of what's happened over the past 40, 50 years in the United States, I mean, and before as well, but particularly recently is the 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 erosion of a political language other than neoliberalism. And I think that we, the part that building that, and people have referred to Reed and, and, and others, I actually was sad to see Pascal Robert, who, I, who was not here, who I saw was on your, on your the original description. Yeah, he was supposed to join, but it turns out that he also doesn't have an Got iPhone. It. So the revolutionaries are all on Android. Got it. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> um, no, but I, I think that, you know, they, they draw, inc- I mean, they've re- these are not, you know, amateurs in Marx. These are folks who who have been able to develop the revolutionary wisdom that they have because yeah. they've been so deeply yeah. rooted in, in, the, in the history of, of ideas. And I think all of us would benefit, I mean, not necessarily to that extent, but we, I think all of us would benefit from being at, at the very least familiar with some of the the important texts and thinking about how you know how to how to use yeah. them. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm going to go ahead and take the next caller. I'll go ahead and answer you what the next caller is at. But I, I would say that of course there's value to reading, and those individuals are incredible resources for me on the show because they are com- able to come on and translate. But I also think that the left needs to stop. And I I understand that this sounds anti-intellectual, and people can to call me anti-intellectual and I'm fully okay with that. If there's any benefit from having had the like dumb credentialism that I've had is that I, I feel completely entitled and empowered to say things like, I don't want to read <laughs> and I dare someone to call me stupid. It's fine. You can do it. It's fine. I can handle it. But to be honest, it's, I haven't read Marx, not because I have not, haven't been interested. There are probably three distinct volumes and a David Harvey reader on Marx sitting right next to my bed that I bought, you know, when we had him on the show and I've gotten like 10 pages into, because guys, the stuff is dry. <laughs> it's just dry. And I have a pretty big brain and a pretty decent capacity to consume stuff. But I got to tell you, it's probably not going to be straight up marks that I am getting this stuff from. A lot of folks since then have written a lot of other things that have made the material more consumable. I love talking to Pascal. I love reading, read, and read. I, 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 I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to try. I promised you guys in a live stream that if I got a certain number of likes that I was going to do an out loud reading series and I will go ahead and do it. But I also think that in a, like a revolutionary context, it's not necessarily super useful to be telling people to read big leather bound books. I have my like um, uh, pedagogy oppressed over there, which I will note is a very slender book that is much easier to consume, not because the language is dumbed down or overly simplistic, but it just gets right to the point. Um, and I, I reasonable minds can disagree on this one, but like, it's not for a lack of trying that I haven't gotten through these Marx and Engels readers that are sitting on my shelf and have been assigned to me since college. Omar, let's let's hear from you. I'm sorry, I put you up there, Wiz. Um, I'm going to come to you next. I keep forgetting because I accidentally made you a speaker, but you're next. Omar? Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Oh, shoot. Um, so real quick, I guess I was just going to add to the point of the conversation that you had with Thomas about him kind of opting out mm-hmm. of race and all that kind of stuff. So just quick on my personal background, I'm 
Mexican American. Um, so obviously my mm-hmm. my racial dynamics are going to be a little bit different. Um, but I had a conversation with the brother-in-law like three days ago, kind of regarding this tension that we've noticed within the discourse around race as Mexican Americans, and I rather would say mm-hmm. American Mexican just like as a sub point because. Back to that conversation they had about patriotism, Brianna. I think there's a lot to that and like reappropriating patriotism mm. in terms of being comfortable enough to say that I'm American Mexican rather than Mexican American. Anyways, um, so we were talking about this tension in terms of uh, mm. how. So my brother-in-law, he grew up here in San Diego. We're across the border from Mexico, Tijuana. Um, he's from Mexican American parents. They were born in Mexico. He was born here in San Diego, and basically he grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. He's not a Spanish speaker himself, right? So he's kind of grew up kind of regular American culture here, speaking speaking English in the States. And he makes a point, right, where like when he would travel across the border to Mexico and like, you know, kind of um, speak to people that are quote unquote from our same race or kind of culture, it's like he would kind of get these like dirty looks or kind of patronizing attitudes from people that would think, that because he's not speaking Spanish or kind of doesn't really seem too in, too in tune with the culture, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's just a, a kind of way that people have in, in looking down upon you, kind of shunning you from the race or culture because, you know, it's kind of, you see it as a rejection, mm-hmm. right? You're stepping away from your roots mm-hmm. or from where you u- usually come from. And I can attest to having taken part in that kind of, I guess it's a kind of discrimination at the end of the day, right? Because I don't know. I get. I'm really. I have. I have a lot of pride for for Mexico and my 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 background. But like I mentioned, um, I don't know. I guess there's this kind of thing happens where like you expect people to kind of have a little the same pride that you have in the culture, in the racial aspect, and sometimes people just for one reason or the other kind of deviate from it because, like I mentioned, there might be some taboo if you're not all in for it. And then he mentions the other point where, like, yeah, and he's too Mexican for, like, the quote-unquote kind of status quo, I guess, white people here. So it's like he's kind of stuck in between where, like, if he – he's not Mexican enough for the Mexicans, but then, like, here he's kind of not – you know, I mean, at the end of the day, like – it's Yeah, it's this racial authenticity game. So, like, we talked about a little on the, on the podcast episode, right, where, um, you know – Thomas and I both have had moments where people have accused us of not being sufficiently um, authentically black when challenged to what uh-huh. that means. It's neither here nor there. I've, I've spoken to, you know, lots of Latinos have talked about how, you know, not speaking Spanish becomes this whole kind of baggage if they don't. And that is a way that they feel like challenged and in some ways perceived as an insufficiently authentic in certain spaces, although it's obviously becoming more common over time that people just don't haven't haven't learned Spanish from their parents. And it, it is interesting that for whatever reason communities feel the need to police their own borders. And I think this maybe comes back to this point that Thomas and I were talking about where I admitted that there's you know, while the one drop rule is obviously the master's tool and is you know was was instated to keep the offspring of slaves as property and it's not something that we should like ideologically want to perpetuate the Mm -hmm. fact that we tend to want to guard things that are precious 
makes me as a black person also want to guard blackness in some respects, right? And to mm-hmm. be possessive over my own black identity and to feel very, you know, to feel frankly more, you know, more comfortable or, or more affection toward biracial people that identify as black, rightly or wrongly, but I will admit to that, right? Like there's a little bit of suspicion yeah, I when I, I meet, you know, people who don't want to identify as black. Yeah, I also have an affection for that kind of solidarity that you were mentioning. So I can definitely understand on that point. And, and I can also acknowledge it's not fair, right? Like I'm thinking that there are biracial people listening to this and that I don't, like, I don't, I'm obviously not trying to offend. But when you know the stack, the stack, sorry, the deck is stacked in the way that it is and people still choose to be the underdog, there's something that is really like allyship to. Exactly. I think it was Dave's point. You know, and exactly. so th- that's complicated, right? That's a complicated psychological dance. And I think other, you know, I know I know plenty of biracial people who like really go hard in the paint because they know that they have to prove themselves. They have to prove their racial bond a few days in a way that like another black person doesn't have to do. And I'm not saying that's right or and wrong, like you, but it's, I don't know. Go ahead. Like you told Thomas, like maybe because of his particular like attributes, like maybe lighter skin complexion, maybe he would kind of have, a better option kind of opting out of it because like i mentioned if i'm speaking to my brother-in-law it's not it's not just because he says he's american over mexican he that doesn't make him look you know light-skinned or blue eyes or anything like that so that's a, also kind of another component that i thought was important about your conversation but i don't know i just want to kind of put it out there that i guess maybe at least on the on the on the mexican-american or hispanic end i always notice this tension in terms of either you you stick to the solidarity and you know and kind of try to keep one foot down with your roots or some other people get pushed away to the other opposite which is kind of embracing the discourse of individualism and working and i'm 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 not a minority you know i'm american and blah 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 but thanks so much for opportunity bring and and just one more thing like a kind of unfortunate compliment the more conversations that here you have which are great like completely awesome i just I just keep thinking, Brie, I don't know if you're going to find somebody that's intellectually competent, but all power to you, completely <laughs> honest. I really appreciate all the work you did. Oh, God, you're, you're sentencing me to singleton forever, Omar. All power to you, but I'm, I'm back, just like... Backhandedly. <laughs> it's just great. Oh, um, man. It's a great combo. Thank you so much for all you do. Thank you, Omar. <laughs> I hope Omar is, is, is wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Omar. Me too. Bye. Um, uh, Wiz. I think you're. You can speak whenever you want because I accidentally made you a speaker. Um, let's let's hear from you, Wiz. Wiz, for some reason I can't hear you, even though I see you've unmuted yourself. Any Wiz? Okay, I'm going to leave you up there in speakers. Hey, can you hear oh wait, me? yeah, there you go. There hey, you go. sorry about that. The app literally just closed on me. Anyway. I, if you guys can hear me, um, thank you, Brie, for inviting me up. And I believe you're going to find someone. <laughs> like, I know yeah. you're going to find someone. Thank you, Yeah, Liz. you're going to find Thanks for the boat yeah, You're going to find someone. <laughs> like, for real. Like, that's, uh, the heart, the hearts are, um, I don't, I was going to say the heart works differently than some of these discourses we're having. But um, I was going to say that, first of all, your business plan worked uh, because I subscribed <laughs> Um, to the Patreon <laughs> yesterday, just to hear, just to watch that full um, YouTube. And what led me to you was honestly the the episode you had with Bertrand. Yeah, and um, 
And I was going to say that mm. because he wrote about something that I'm very passionate about. I, I work in film and TV and uh, I come from an uh, impoverished background as a black person. So I was, I've been mm. telling my friends and colleagues that this phenomenon was happening, but I was like, I really don't have the, like, <laughs> I didn't go as deep as he did to like, to like, you know what I mean? Explain it. Um, but what, what I wanted to comment on is just like how dope the episode was um, with Thomas, and, right? And the, the way that you engage in the conversation was just really dope. It was refreshing to see and to be a part of and to witness like, like how you engaged with him in a way that was like asking him to explain certain things. Um, and then your vulnerability during that conversation was really dope because it really opened up you know, the conversation in a way that's like, okay, I'm not just gonna, you know, say we should move past race. I'm gonna actually explore this topic, right? And, um, mm. you know, from you bringing up the uh, interracial dating point, which were some great points, you know what I mean? Like you made a real, you made really great points about preference, you know, and how, mm. you know, society shapes our preferences, but also the discourse can shape our preferences. Um, and mm -hmm. you, the moment where you said to him that you were open and honest about the fact that your blackness also does something for you, right? Like mm -hmm. watching the video and him visually respond, like his visceral <laughs> response to that was like, he finally got someone to say, right? Yeah, people, really, people really saw that as like kind of a big admission on my part, but I didn't think, I think that some people interpreted it as like, I'm black and therefore I get like special treatment or I get to claim victim status or affirmative action or something like that. But what I meant was I feel the protective embrace in terms of my self-esteem. And this, this came out earlier in the conversation that wasn't clipped for YouTube. So that was part of the confusion, I think. But I feel self, I get self-esteem from my own community and validation from my own community that I don't get from culture at large, right? Like, if I sat around waiting oh, for white American I mean, culture to tell me yet. that I'm attractive or worthwhile or something, I'd be sitting somewhere trying to jump off a cliff. You know, right. I, right. We, we turn on the TV. I think that some white people don't really appreciate how ingrained it is that you turn on the TV and there's some person with long straight hair flipping it in slow motion. And you'll ask someone, someone will say, oh, I'm dating someone new. And they'll say, oh, are they cute? And they'll be like, oh, they're blonde haired and blue eyed. And I'll be like, okay, are they cute? <laughs> <laughs> right and like they don't even hear what they're saying they don't even know what they're doing so like what yeah. i what i meant by that is that i i think there's a reason why black women have like kind of divested i think in a lot of ways from the aesthetic preferences of mainstream society and, and it's because you don't get anything from it and why black women are the only group of women that prefer to date their own men their own race of men because there is this kind of self-protective like fine like you're not into it that's fine but i'm not going to base my self-esteem by your Eurocentric metrics. And I have dated black men who aren't from America, who don't have that same protective bubble of like going by the beat of your own drum and thinking black is beautiful and having your own separate cultural identity. And they have compared themselves to others. There are all these black guys who try to like straighten their hair and stuff, which, you know, no shade. I straightened my hair until I was, you know, 20 or whatever. But like, it, it it's a difference. And I felt bad for the guy. You know, I felt bad for my ex who didn't yeah. have anything to lean on other than broader white culture. You're talking about the guy from Canada. Yeah. Yeah. yeah cool. I mean, and, yeah. and look, again, that was, that's what I thought was dope because you're like opening that part of your life up to the conversation 
to really juxtapose some of the points that he was making about, you know, should we move past race? And, you know, like, I think that, I think in a lot of ways, like, he, I mean, he makes a lot of salient points, but it's like, also, we're at the point where the, a lot of these conversations are about acceptance, right? Mm. And being mm. accepted. And it permeates every part of our society. As you, as, again, as you pointed out, when you talked about the dating portion, that if someone could be tall, and he made this joke about, hey, I am tall, right? Like, but like, <laughs> it is about acceptance. And acceptance, not just in the realm of, you know, dating romance, but it's like also in like the material world and, you know, education and all of these things. And I think that if we did move past race, there'd be more things for us to figure out how we're going to accept people, right? Like there'll be more situations and dynamics for us to argue about. And that's just a hypothesis. I, I can't prove it, right? But like, I really do believe that you know, we sh there there. I would hope that there was a space where people's race, people's racial identity and backgrounds could be recognized and celebrated, whether or not you are a part of that community and not perniciously, right? Yes, that is such an important and interesting point. With that I struggle with as I struggle to process the extent to which I can successfully date interracially. Because there is a part of me that yeah, wants I mean, to be valued. Like, I don't want someone to like me despite being Black. I also am uncomfortable with the idea, the, the, the fine line between someone liking and appreciating and valuing the parts of you that come from your ethnic, cultural, racial identity and not fetishizing it. No, I understand that too. And, and, and look, full disclosure, like I'm producing, I'm in the beginning of producing a podcast that's all about interracial uh, relationships right but mm, interracial fascinating rela interracial relationships that that um that basically favor family planning right because the conversation around interracial relationships always dips into the pernicious and whether or not someone is actually you know um fetishizing right or it'll or if mm -hmm. someone is actually appropriating and all this other stuff when the fact of the matter is, is that you know when someone's in a relationship with another person whether it's you know same uh same sex relationship or it's um what you know a heteronormative relationship and it's a different culture or class or whatever right like mm -hmm. a lot of the normal dynamics of relationships fall right into place right because intimacy is not locked into uh you know a class or race or what you know orientation or whatever right but my point is that like it really comes down to whether or not we can actually as a society or a community or discourse, like within the zeitgeist say, it's actually okay for someone to recognize what is beautiful about someone being Mexican American or Chicano, right? Um, without it being something that's negative because mm -hmm. we know about it, right? And I, and maybe this is me being African American, mm -hmm. being what I call like a hood black person, cause I'm from East Oakland, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I grew up, Lots of California on the call today. What's going on? Is it because it's a, an ideal time to be on a call on the West Coast, or <laughs> Maybe. it's a it's a it's a California app? Like, what's going on? Yeah, I'm from East Oakland. I live in Los Angeles, but like, I was gonna say that for me, I grew up in that environment where, because of the cultural disposition of the city I grew up in, which was informed by the Black Panthers, a lot of my community are non-Black folks who recognize what's beautiful about me being Black in a non-pernicious way. 
right? They're not trying to leverage that mm. knowledge to gain anything, right? Like mm. I've had conversations with my friends who are not, um, you know, who don't have, any, you know, as we know, any speck of blackness or, or African, something from the African diaspora within them, you know, they're immigrants from Vietnam, uh, their parents were immigrants from Vietnam and they're like, yeah, I understand all these things and I understand the ways that I could come off to someone who is either African-American or very liberal and watching out for whether or not I'm actually, you know, appropriating or doing something negative with how I perceive black culture, right? Um, we've had those conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's just about whether or not we understand that we can celebrate the existence of difference in other people, right? And not be harmful to it or even offensive to it when we celebrate those things in so far as we don't have to necessarily move past race, right? That we actually are in the space where someone who is different is respected by us and not tolerated. Cause you brought up a really great point earlier about some people are like, well, I respect it. And then it's like, then it turns into tolerance and it's just like, you're just dealing with me for the, for while I'm here, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But like, mm -hmm. it's like your morning breath. Yeah. <laughs> you, you tolerate morning breath. You shouldn't be tolerating the fact that I'm black. <laughs> yeah, but it's all, a lot of this is just couched in, you know, it's couched in like whether or not we struggle, you know, the struggle that we all have with how we're accepted, how we deal with privilege, how we deal with the, with luxuries. Cause that's the word I'm starting to use now. Right. Which is that, in the conversation you were having with Thomas and the things that you said about when you got to college and you met other black folks who you knew weren't necessarily from poverty and they were performing a blackness is what Bertrand touched on in his article, right? For me, I was like, I cannot believe mm -hmm. this is happening, that someone is admitting this, right? Because like, <laughs> to be completely honest, coming from the background that I come from, I've had those moments like what Bertrand spoke about, I think it was on the end of the podcast where he's like, he qualifies his experience against what other people in his classroom were saying about blackness. And then mm -hmm. he talks about his experience and they're like, everyone else in the class is like, oh damn, I've had that experience before. Well, I'm like, well, this is what happened to me when I was younger. And it's very different than what other mm -hmm. black folks are saying that they experienced. It, it is really a place mm -hmm. where you are delineating your privilege from your pain. And for people who didn't listen to the episode, it's the example of, you know, someone like me might be like, oh, yeah, the lady in Ann Taylor thought I worked there and kept asking me to yes. find clothes. And then Bertrand comes up and he's like, well, I, you know, I, I grew up, my mother was an addict and I was living in, a, you know, a, a crack house, right. I, like literally coming up. And it's like, oh, well, maybe I should shut, sit up and shut down or <laughs> shut up and sit down. Yeah, and it's like, and I just want, yeah. I just want to say, like, that's big of you to do that, because I feel like. Even with me saying like, oh, I grew up in the hood, I, I, I tend to do that too. We'll say, well, my parents, even though they didn't stay together, my dad was in my life. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. really, again, delineating mm -hmm. my, my privileges from my pain. And then also like, just because you say that, I can't fast forward into thinking, oh, well then Brie is, like all like what you experience where people will say, they try to qualify your blackness, right? You know what I mean? Like that's not right. fair either, right? And it's like, if we're just dealing with that within our intra communities, right? It's gonna definitely be hard for yeah. us to do that across communities. But I think it's I think it's possible. I think it's just as possible as you finding a partner, right? Who is 
<laughs> who is on your intellectual <laughs> level, right? Call me an optimist if you want, but like you guys are too much. Call me first of all. I'm dating. Okay, good, I date. I'm good. in these streets. I'm dating. All right, there's I've no, got options. There's nothing about. I, look, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a long time listener. I'm a new listener, but I'm happy to be here. And there was nothing about what I've seen that made me think that you're going to be struggling. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're going to be okay. And I hope you continue on the path to just finding love in general, because I mean, obviously if you want a black man, I really hope you find a black man, but if you want anything, I, you know, I just love is hard enough. Dating is hard enough. So hopefully what, whoever it is, they just, they're healthy and they treat you right. But, but I just wanted to say before I get out of here, cause I know you want to end this like, the conversations you're having are really important because we need conversations that happen beyond the limits of the platforms that we're giving, that we're giving. You know what I mean? Like 10, 10 streams on Instagram mm -hmm. doesn't do it. And, you know, the word count on Twitter doesn't do it. And so I'm really happy to see mm -hmm. and excited to see you engaging in these things in a way, you know, no pun intended, in a, in a, in a good faith way, right? so that we can actually <laughs> kind of take a look anatomically at what's happening because that's the other thing too like you have an anatomical approach to what is actually going on in the world at least from your, your from your purview and to me i think it's 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 fair and that's that's all that we can at least ask for so that's that's what i wanted to share well, thank you for that. I really value your contributions, Wiz, and good luck with your podcast. And you'll have to let me know when it gets started because I want to be a guest and maybe have you back to co-host. I mean, we have there's a, one episode up now. What's it called it's again? It's called the, the podcast is called Guess Who uh, Guess Who Came to Dinner, and Guess Who Came. We, we interview That's excellent. we interview couples over a meal, right? About their, what their experience is like being in an interracial relationship, right? So we hear it from. So their I, I only get to come on. If, I only get to come on if I if I bring a, a non-black boo with me <laughs> no, no. i mean if you're dating and you have some experiences you want to share we'll interview you too you know what i mean like <laughs> all right anyway. I'll, I'll keep that in mind um thank you again wiz right. i really appreciate sure, it peace. all right ernie bringing up the rear what do you have to say for yourself ernie hey Bree, can you hear me i can loud and oh clear excellent audio quality oh, wow that's great um Bree. First of all, most importantly, I know you're going to find a guy so soon. Okay, wait a minute. Everyone has got to stop doing this. I don't know what what narrative is out there that I'm like somehow struggling and I'm, I'm like sad and single. Like, I, no one needs to assure me that I'm gonna have a guy. I'm literally juggling men right now. I promise you, it's not an issue. Uh, and I I'm hope they don't listen to this now. I'm just trying to be discreet. Guys. Because I know they be listening to these podcasts, and I have to be careful about what I say about this. But not if I But you guys need to stop. Come on, Ernie. Don't I'm do me like playing. that, I'm Ernie. Just like, because everyone else is saying that. I think that's weird. <laughs> but um, no. I've, also, I'm from California, so you know, okay. West Side's in the house. Can, um, west Side. Also, uh, shout out to my best friend Mia, because uh, we are some of your biggest fans. Oh, well, shout out to Mia. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, um, you know, we like you, Glenn, um, Crystal, Taivi, uh, Katie. Mm -hmm. That's the crew. That's the crew. That's that's you are our Marvel extended like cinematic universe. Like <laughs> <laughs> you guys are, like we're talking about you like all day. And we're like, oh, my God, do you see what Bree's wearing today? And <laughs> 
<laughs> you know that oh they're she's playing uh tennis with crystal today oh my god um so just know that we're always uh watching you not in a creepy sense but in a well i appreciate i appreciate that somebody's noticing my now extensive collection of mock neck turtlenecks in every single color <laughs> on the rainbow mama sees a mock neck turtleneck she buys it to wear on air <laughs> Yeah, we, we we like looking how your background changes and all that too. So uh, you know, keep keep changing it up. Give us things to talk about. Um, uh, so what's going on, Ernie? What what did what did you think? Was it, did you have a comment or question about um, the episode or anything? Someone anyone else has said in, in this conversation today? Okay, well I'll admit I missed most of the first part of this, but I saw Glenn on YouTube and he said to start listening to you, and so I got on here and. And I caught you, and, and um, I think that's super awesome. I love Glenn. What a doll. Glenn, He's such a sweetie pie. <laughs> and, you know, his. Uh, I saw his handle on this, his GG, and that's what me and my friends just called mm-hmm. him. Like, we just say GG, and everyone knows who we're talking about. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, he has a stream, I think, that started at 8. I felt a little guilty. I was trying to get off of here so that people wouldn't feel conflicted. Um, oh, that's okay. We'll, we'll go and jump over to this uh, real soon. Please do, um, yeah. Well, I mean, um, Bree, I, I have so much to say about every episode that you have on Bad Faith because, you know, uh, me and, and everyone I know just feels like you do such a good job representing what working class, progressive, people of color think. Um, all the stuff with, and, and the questions you ask to people like uh, like you had Roe on the other day and the questions you ask are so good mm-hmm. And there's and everyone you have on, they don't have good answers. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I, and I don't mean that as a criticism. Like I really appreciate everybody coming on, and I know everyone's trying their best. But I was saying this: I was on the Fred Hampton Left stream earlier. They're doing the general strike uh, stream over the course of the weekend. People should check it out. And we were we were talking about that. And I was talking about how I feel insecure because I'm not an organizer and I, I'm insecure about being in that space. And I don't know how much advice I have to give in the context of a event about a general strike. But I am more confident now than I used to be, if only because I've asked all the experts the same rounds of questions over and over and over again for over a year now. And I'm getting to feel like they don't necessarily always have better solutions than I do, even though they have an enormous amount of experience that I continue to learn from. And, you know, that's that the question you ask about what is the best path forward and where do we go from here and how do we win next time? Mm-hmm. You know, we are mm-hmm. all thinking the same thing always. Like, mm. what do we do next? And and it, I wish I, I know you're struggling with that. And, and we all are. And you know, Yang has this new party. There's the People's Party. There's the Green Party. Mm-hmm. I, I'm waiting to find like what's that best path forward. Um. Anyway, I, I, yeah. I know you don't have the answer right now, but I'm, I'm just saying, I, <laughs> keep, keep asking those questions because I, I, we all want to know also. Um. Well, thank you, Ernie. I appreciate that. Um, I will say, you know, I had Andrew, Andrew Yang on, you know, a week ago or so, and some people felt some sort of way about that, but. You know, whatever you feel about him, and we we talked about his blunders. He is, you know, learning on the fly and making mistakes, and maybe some of it is not just learning. Some of it is like purposeful, and we shouldn't let him off the hook for it for, for sure. But regardless of what form it comes in, I feel very strongly about third parties being a big part of the solution. And 
he has demonstrated an ability to put issues on the map in a way that few other yeah. politicians have with the UBI. And if he wants to pick up the mantle of third parties and ranked choice voting, I think those are two extremely important issues. And I will be supportive of him and continuing to elevate those and, and pushing those until they're as mainstream and more mainstream than UBI, because I think it's important. And I think that sometimes, you know, I think it's important to keep our values in mind and be, you know, clear eyed and, and firmly rooted in our ideals on the left at the same time that we can't miss the forest for the trees and get into a kind of a purity politics land that, you know, you can critique Yang at the same time that you support his effort to advance ranked choice voting. Like you can do both in the same breath. You know, you don't have to pretend he's a perfect person to be like ranked choice voting is a good idea, you know? So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I totally agree because Green Party got ranked choice voting on some ballots during this uh, last whatever month or so. And um, mm-hmm. I, I, I wish people like, you know, combine their efforts a little bit more. Um, you know, uh, I, I do think he's probably helping, even though it's like, um, I don't know what he uh, is putting the focus just on him instead of joining some of the efforts. As, as long as it does something, I'm, I'm OK with it. Um, yeah, well, hopefully we'll, we'll have this episode where there's Yang or another forward party representative, an MPP person and a Green Party person. Um, we talked about this with Jill Stein when she was on, and I told her that she should, should sit down with an MPP person. And now that Yang's in the mix, I think it should be all three. And we'll get to the bottom of this question of why there's this multiplicity of efforts and, you know, why forward and not something else. When I asked, you know, when I asked MPP, they talk about some of the Green Party's branding issues. And I think that Yang can make a similar argument about MPP. Uh, and th- it might be reasonable to make that argument that there have been some missteps that have caused people to be mistrustful of them. But I think it's still a worthwhile conversation to have. Um, but thank you, Ernie. We, ha- we are at the end of this almost two and a half hour marathon. I appreciate all of you have stuck through it. The beauty of this app is that you can save these episodes and it is a podcast that will be on an RSS feed. Um, and I appreciate all of you for helping me to produce this first effort. Please take care of yourselves and each other. And as always, keep the faith.